Hey everyone, welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. My name is Dan. Uh, I'm an alcoholic and addict. Uh, and if you're from the TSSR world, I am one too. Uh, if you're just bumping into this podcast, it's primarily 12-step recovery-based podcast. But we do explore all, in any ways, people recover uh, from whatever it is that they that ails them. And uh, recovery can come in a whole lot of flavors. Uh, generally, it gets kind of pigeonholed into the uh, substance abuse, chemical dependency world. But, uh, you know, you can recover from divorce, recover from childhood trauma, recover from uh, a traumatic accident. Uh, all kinds of things can fall under the world of the word recovery. So uh, I think I, it sums up best to uh, just say getting back to the true me, finding recovering the my true self. Um, so that's what we explore here. Uh, DTMWW.net or DTM Woodworking Handyman. I'm a little handyman woodworking company here in uh, the Louisville metropolitan area. If I can be of any assistance. Please let me know. It's 502-292-7444 or dan at dtmww.net. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It is available on Amazon in uh, Kindle format and a couple different hard copy formats. Uh, it is a 12-Steps formatted for anyone and everyone. Uh, it doesn't focus so much on uh, the substance abuse chemical dependency angle. Uh, although the the information is uh, kind of comes from that direction, being that the writer come from that background, but uh, it is a, a way to harness these twelve steps to help uh, give you a little more in your life or a little better in your life if you have any room for that, and uh, rarely find somebody who couldn't that doesn't have room for a little more or a little better. Uh, I don't know if your tank ever gets completely full. So that's 12-step spiritual recovery. Uh, James Christopher Cohn. And like always, if you need any help, you can hit one of them emails or telephone numbers and I'll help you find that stuff. Uh, we have meetings in the Louisville area. We have uh, Zoom meetings and live meetings here. And uh, we'll hook you up if you're interested in using these, utilizing these tools or giving them a shot. Music here's uh, before and after this podcast is by Darren Frank. Uh, super good buddy of mine and uh guys just was influential in my recovery and uh, i'm just glad to have his music wrapped around here he sings uh recovery based songs and uh it was kind of funny i was talking to somebody not long ago that uh was a one of my guys is a deadhead he chased the grateful dead and did all that and uh and and you know would disappear all summer long on tour chasing here and chasing there and then he got sober he didn't know how he was going to do that and uh and, and that would be tricky business to some extent but it's funny how all of a sudden the lyrics in the songs all changed for him once he started getting a recovery based mind he started hearing the lyrics in a different way than he was hearing them uh so that's uh i, I say that to say this is that darren's music truly is with recovery in the in the in the front end of it when it was written but the uh, uh i noticed when i got sober i started hearing recovery themed things in lots of songs and lots of shows and lots of other things that i uh it's kind of like what you have your focus on. Uh, Lindsay's with me today. Lindsay is, um, is uh, dang it, it's going to kick me. Cindy's sponsor. And uh, she was here with us a couple weeks ago when Cindy told her story. And uh, when she, she sat in with for a little bit, and I rarely let somebody get. Uh, I don't think there's any accidents why people run into each other. Uh, so uh, if I get that nudge, and I trust it, you know, if I get that nudge to say, 
ask or don't ask, whichever one, <laughs> I, I follow that nudge today. And I, I'm glad that you were able to come in and share your story. Thank you. Uh, I hear a lot of great stuff about you. <laughs> I really do. No kidding. Uh, from a few different angles, people have asked me. And I never knew who Cindy's sponsor was. Or, you know, I didn't, I just, uh, not until, uh, I guess until uh, Travis's latest birthday mm-hmm. did, did I finally meet you. So, uh, super cool to have you in here today. And I really, really appreciate you uh, taking your time out to share your story because that is the fundamental way we pass this thing along is by, uh, by telling our story and what we did. And as the book says, what, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me here. I do appreciate it. Yeah, so it, doing these podcasts is kind of fun. It's fun to me, and it, and I see people's uh, energy, my guests' energy, uh, always end up leaving here a little juiced up. <laughs> uh, so I know it's also, uh, uh, I'm not, I don't think I've had a single strikeout where I had a podcast where I've recorded one and walked off and felt, you know, like it maybe was a flop or something, you know, mm-hmm. that something didn't go right or or anything every one of them there's no reason why i think you know it's like those higher power higher power attaboys or god winks or god nods you hear all kinds of little Mm -hmm. uh god shots god shots all the little uh, acronyms and sayings for these things that tell me that my compass needle is pointed in my true north you know when you get those little taps on the shoulder and uh the podcast being supported like that continuing to have guests come in and then uh and, and feeling really good about episode after episode. Because I know some people do some podcasts that don't make it to the air. Yeah. And uh, I've questioned a couple of them on whether if I thought the content uh, was in alignment with what I was doing here. But uh, I just didn't. I, I set that to the side and went, yeah. Uh, God didn't send them here if it wasn't supposed to be. Yep. So uh, I just roll with it. What is your sobriety date? Uh, my sobriety day is June 23rd of 2009. 2009. So that, uh, my math, that's 12. 12 years, 12 yes. 12 years. That's mm-hmm. a long time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a miracle. Yeah. That is true. It's a funny thing, this time thing, you know. I always do reflect on that. I love when people having their first birthdays. There's nothing funner than to be mm-hmm. in somebody's first. They make it through that first year, especially <laughs> if you were able to like, walk beside them the whole time, you know, if you kind of knew them. I mean, when you can see somebody that comes in the door, and then you watch their progress. Uh, that's a that's a lot of uh, fuel for my soul mm-hmm. to watch that happen, and then to watch how much somebody changes. And then there's like a time warp. It was for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, first off, you're really uh, getting a lot of attention in your home group and things like that, and for a, for a year. And then you get that token, and it almost feels like people pull the rug out from anything because somebody else came in, and they're on their first year, and everybody's paying attention to them. <laughs> I always call that like a two-year vacuum. Mm-hmm. Like in our home group, you get a token every month. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're not going to get another one for a year. <laughs> and you're so used to getting all this and getting all everybody clapping for you. And, and boom. Uh, that's why I think sponsorship is so important. And I don't think there's any rule on how long you've been, how long you're sober, you can help somebody. And, right. Uh, and that really, really does keep you in the ballgame. Um, but then that time warp thing happens because I... Uh, working on seven years and and it's it's like a flash you know it just does it almost doesn't compute you know uh, it does feel like a long time since i've had a drink or a drug it does feel like that mm-hmm. uh but it feels like just a minute ago that that i went through the early part of recovery and the struggle that that is trying to uh, uh 
uh, utilize these steps and get some kind of design for living under my feet that uh, could keep me, you know, remove that obsession and and move me along in a trajectory that that uh, 180 degrees out from where I used to be. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up around here? I grew up in Madison, Indiana. Madison. Yes. Nice. Don't judge Another me. Hoosier. <laughs> yeah. I always yeah. like that, but I get people that are uh, grew up in Indiana. Yeah, my parents are still living there in the same house that I grew up in. They fly north for the winter, though. Oh, do so they? They're in Michigan. Yeah. For the summer. For the summer. Yeah, yeah, it is the summer. So they kind of snowbird by staying here when it's cool and go up there when it's warm. <laughs> when it's warm, yep, that's what they do. Yeah, yep. yeah. The winters up there can be uh, rather rough. Or do they have some background up there, or they just go for fun? Yeah. So my dad was born in the house on the beach on Grand Traverse Bay, where they still yeah. own that property. So it's owned by sort of the whole family. It's nice. It's now been bought up. All the other lots have been bought up by like hockey players. So we okay. still got our one little beach cottage, and then these huge. Big, nice places. Keeps your property value up. <laughs> yeah. Or they're yeah. saying, yours is bringing theirs now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. So uh, it sounds like you're one of the things is like some uh, hang sticking when roots or whatever you would say, you know, when you hang on to that, your, your roots from growing up, mm-hmm. I'm that way too. You know, like I live in a house I grew up in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, there's, that, that means something to me. It took me a long time in recovery to get back to that, though. I did a lot of running before I came back to where my roots are. Yeah. You know, so. Do you go up there? Uh, I go up there. So during the summer, we now take, like, we went up there when we were kids, and so I take my kids up there, but there was sort of a lot of years in active addiction there where I was, you know, uh, missing in action, for sure. So, um, but yeah, it's good. Uh, I do love the north. uh, I have absolutely no desire to go south. (laughs) <laughs> beach in Alabama, Gulf Shores, Florida, Hot. all that stuff yeah. has nothing for me. Now, you know, when it's when we've been through winter and it's like February or something, you know, that can kind of start scratching at me. Yeah. Uh, when you want a it's little cold, warm, you're in the middle. Them, yeah. I just can't make any sense out of going to Florida in July. <laughs> no. uh, I, I, I hate the sand and. Uh, <laughs> But man, I can see, I can really, my family used to go vacation when I was a kid to like Wisconsin mm-hmm. and, and places like that up on the Great Lakes, in the, sum, yeah. in the summertime and uh, go up there and it's a little, little milder. And, uh, there's something about that North Woods too that mm-hmm. touches me somehow I'm not quite in connection with, but know that, uh, that, 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 that does something for me. I've been up to a week long uh, canoe end trip up in Quitico in the Boundary oh, yeah. Waters with uh my dad my brother and, and my cousin a real close cousin and uh that was uh, a vacation i'll never never forget mm-hmm. i'm actually anxious to go back although we've uh, i'm afraid the colorado thing is going <laughs> to ruin I, that I need more. yeah it's gonna it's going to uh, nudge me to want more of that too yeah i really like it around here i really do i got no desire to go anyplace else uh I've got some property here. I've got a nice place to live. I've got this shop. I've got a lot of anchors in mm-hmm. around here, and uh, and I just can't imagine up uprooting and going anyplace else. Uh, I like it. So, um, how'd you? What your brothers, sisters? How? Tell me a little bit about growing up. So, like I said, I grew up in Madison. I have one sister, and she's six years older than me. Uh, her name's Chris, and um, my. Mom was a school teacher uh, for emotionally handicapped children her whole um, life there in Madison and retired. And my dad was a 
propane tank installer service man for the entire time that he, uh, you know, until he retired. Um, and my sister and I growing up, um, I mean, I, that was my first indication pretty young that there, that I was abnormal, or at least that my outlook on the world was abnormal. I couldn't put it into words back then, but I, I can only say that I was born into the world feeling less than because I immediately from my youngest memory compared myself to her and I always came up short there and I remember just recently uh, I heard a preacher or somebody say something um, that really struck me and it was like if I'm comparing myself to somebody it's never on a spiritual plane because I'm either always going to be less than or I'm always going to be greater than, but I'm never just a fellow among my fellows. Mm -hmm. And it kind of talks about that um, in AA literature about how we're, we want to be on top of the heap or under the heap, but we just never want to be part of um, the fellowship. So that was really my whole life. Um, she was very um, what every parent would want in a child. She was, she, she did all the things that she was supposed to do that met their sort of standards of a child. And I felt um, that I was never going to be able to meet that. Mm -hmm. So I just like literally took off running the other direction when I was really young because I realized I wasn't going to get any positive attention unless I worked really hard. <laughs> and so I just always went for the negative attention because it was better than no attention at all. And that's a pretty good spread. The six years is uh, uh, pretty wide, you know, that becomes mm -hmm. the, and I don't really, my, my dad had a brother that was like 10 years older, and I've had some cousins that had siblings that were that much older, and it was almost like they weren't really a sibling. They're so, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. so many years by that uh, you're still a little kid, and they're driving. Yeah. And, <laughs> they don't want any, any yeah, part of yeah, that mess. Yeah. So. I will say as a result of these steps, as in all my relationships, that I truly incorporate these uh, principles, uh, that relationship has completely been, healed. Been and prepared. I learned early in recovery that if I changed my reaction to her, her reaction to me always changed. So she didn't have to change in order for that relationship to get better. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the many miracles that this stuff, this stuff does, you know, uh. There's this big, you know, and Bill says it really good in the book in a couple, in a couple different places. But the, uh, you know, the 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 pile of problems so big we can't imagine solving them all. That's a, definitely a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. But uh, relationships is definitely in that pile when we get here about how we're gonna, you know, I'll I'll never be able to fix this one or fix that one, you mm -hmm. know. And I'm quick today to go, oh, oh don't let's stop that right here now. Yep. Uh, I've yet to see anything. This this stuff doesn't work on yes uh mostly because i'm the problem we're going to work on you it really ain't them <laughs> new relationships so the relationships that were struggling when i got sober i which were you know immediate family for the most part or any kind of romantic relationships but those i knew those triggers so well that when i got sober and worked these steps thoroughly i was able to really work on my character defects and those triggers so those relationships got better but new relationships in recovery i didn't catch on to the triggers quick enough to where my character defects were already all mm. over them and um i found that those things have been harder to catch the longer uh, i've been sober it's that's interesting odd how yeah. that works yeah i haven't had the best relationship uh 
history since uh, I've been sober either. Not to say that it, well, I was married for 17 years. Yeah. Uh, I can't say that was actually I don't know that I did anything to be successful there I can't like take credit for anything (laughs) there Uh, but uh, it's interesting because I love you that the divorce was a result of my Mm -hmm. addictions my alcoholism and addiction and uh, we'd probably still be together if it wasn't for that I'm I'm throwing that out there because I know that's how it ended Uh, but yeah um, relationships are no easier to not to navigate They're easier because I'm not such a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't have really found that magic button sweet spot yet. <laughs> no. And I don't know that I want to either. That's another thing that uh, I've leveled out and realized that I do like me. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay not having somebody. You know, there yeah. was, I look back now and look at like, you know, for, to some extent, uh, I either was in a relationship or I was stalking my next victim. Mm. You know how I needed to be in a relationship. So one of them one pro- yeah. problems in the beginning. If you're not, you either got a problem with your current relationship, or you got a problem because you ain't in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and I need one now. Uh, but I think that's. I mean, I, I think sort of that's human condition. But some of that is that you know, us, as alcoholics, cannot go within ourselves and to God to fix that void inside of us so we're always looking on the outside and without alcohol and drugs like people of the opposite sex are the next yeah or work workaholism Workaholism. i mean those two things i have to vacillate back and forth and try to keep my bearings you know what i mean yeah we're in alignment on that i said uh stole this from some speaker and he said uh busyness is my drug of choice in recovery (laughs) Mm -hmm. i just stay real busy Yes, and that can definitely feed my other character defect, which is martyrdom. Yeah. You know, I can talk about how... Busy. Yeah, you know, I got all this shit going on so that, you know, it. I don't know, so I see more important than I am, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know, the awareness of those things, though, is worth its weight in gold today, you know. At least I know that's out there, you know, and so yeah. just the oblivious... Uh, uh, martyrdom is another one that yeah that's kind of the um, world we live in today though everybody wants to be the busiest person you know what i mean because it comes with a pomp and prestige and yeah, it's, it's like a measure right. of success or something about mm-hmm. how busy you can be and how yeah. many balls Important you can you have are. in the air yeah. at the same time and um uh, this never reminds me of another meme it really hit me hard a couple of years ago and it says let's let's all stop telling each other how busy we are <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I really do think about that yeah. today, you know, because uh, when you ask somebody, go up, just say, how you, how you been? And you know, at the, uh, 80% of the time, they're going to say busy. Busy. <laughs> That's going to be their answer. You know, and like, yeah, I know, we're all busy. So, yeah, yeah it's the world no, really, we live in. Yeah. How yeah. are you really? Um, so back to that childhood um I suppose, you know, whatever you want to tell me about how that, you know any, any particular things that happened and then uh, also would like to get around i'm sure you remember at some point when you first started being attracted to the chemicals for mm-hmm. a solution so um i mean i would say my life growing up early on was um pretty normal I mean, my parents you know they loved me they told me they loved me they got me in sports they told me they were proud of me they i mean they were you know there was nothing that i needed that i wasn't getting from them um but because I'm an alcoholic, I always want more. It was early on, it was like that. It was before I took my first drink. It, it was never going to be enough, whatever they were offering. 
Um, and so um, I just remember feeling abnormal compared to the rest of my peers. And I heard it when I came into AA, like I, I felt like I had missed the day when they explained this whole like guidebook to life thing. Like I missed all that shit. So what I saw other people doing with impunity seemed impossible to me. Um, and so that's why I like the part in the ninth step promises where it says, you know, um, we're able to handle things which used to baffle us because everything baffled me. Yeah. Um, long before I took a drink, my life was unmanageable long before I took a drink. But that first drink when I was about 12 was a solution to that unmanageability for the first time it all kind of aligned. Like it wasn't that I was the funniest person in the room or the prettiest girl in the room or the smartest person in my family it was that like I no longer cared that I wasn't any of those things and I felt like that must be what normal people feel like and when I got sober they told me normal people drink to feel good and alcoholics drink to feel normal and that was my experience you know and I just remember feeling for the first time in my life uh, some relief from the constant state of um, anxiety that my abnormality in life caused. You know, and when I talk to my parents, I always say, because I can look back at pictures and I can just see that self-loathing for myself that I had in Mm me at a very young age. And I would always tell them, like, God, I was just so weird. And they'd say, you weren't weird. You were so cute. But, like, to me, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what anybody thought of me because my perception was... Crooked. I mean, we have a disease of the perception. So um, I drank and used. I was arrested a few times um, in my teenage years, which was extremely embarrassing for my parents. They played bridge with, like, the local judges in Madison and would have to take me in to get put on house arrest. It was um, embarrassing uh, for them. But when I, you know, was in the midst of my addiction, I did not understand fully how I was being selfish because I wasn't necessarily like stealing from them, but you know what? I was stealing like peace of mind from them. You know, I was, they were doing everything they could to give me every opportunity at life. And I was just throwing it away. And really with such um, disregard for how much effort they were putting in, you know, and now that I have children, I understand that really all they ever wanted was for me to be okay. They didn't, care about all the other shit they just wanted me to be okay um so that went on and i so when i was 18 i was so the last two years of high school i dated a guy named donnie he went to the navy like immediately as soon as we started dating which is great because i didn't really like him that much you know what i mean (laughs) but his dad grew his own weed and made his own dandelion wine out there in dupont so i would skip school every day Uh, and drive out there and play foosball with those old drunk guys and smoke some homegrown weed and, you know, drink dandelion wine. And uh, it was, like, quite the life. Well, um, my dad was a merit scholar to Michigan State because of just based on his SAT scores. And uh, my mom got her master's degree in education. She went to the University of Michigan. My sister went to IU. So, like... Uh, there was some pressure on me to pick a college at some point, but my sister had dropped out about her junior year 
And I just remember thinking, like, if she can't make it, I'm not going to make it. And I knew pretty early on I couldn't handle that much freedom because I was already struggling in my current environment to stay in bounds. So, also, he had gone off to the Navy. We went and saw him graduate from boot camp. And then, like, my senior year, G.I. Jane came out, and she was such a badass, right? So, like, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be Demi Moore. Which she was in the Navy SEALs, whatever. I had like this deluded sense of grandeur, but I did. I joined the military, and it's funny looking back because I was trying to get away from my parents, like, uh, you know, like get out from under their thumb and their control. I just didn't want to spend their money on college because I knew the dictatorship would continue and I couldn't fucking deal with it. And so. I go to the military where yeah. obviously yeah, they don't have any control over you. You know what I mean? And uh, someplace with some real rules. <laughs> but that was the first geographical cure I'd ever had. And it was the first time I realized two years later as I was sitting in that court martial getting kicked out for a dirty urine. I remember knowing that I had brought myself with me, right? Like I thought that I could go to the military and the structure would be so, um, you know, it like the integrity of the structure would be so that I would not go back to my old ways of powerlessness over drugs and alcohol. Yeah, this would be good for me. This will be good for me. I, I won't want to do drugs and I won't want to find those people that fulfill yeah. this weird thing that or I have inside of me. this will fix me. Yeah, and uh, it didn't. <laughs> and so I got kicked out of the Navy when I was about... Did you have a period where it did? Like, did, was it successful, like, you were when you first showed up there and were able to, like, keep a rope around things in the beginning? Or did it, was you off the rails as soon as you hit the door? As soon as I got out of boot camp, I was pretty much off the rails because um, boot camp, you can't do you really anything. You can't do anything, yeah. Mm-mm. But by the time I got out of boot camp, I needed a solution to the way I was feeling because that was, again, you know, we just have a, I have... I'm not able to deal with life on life's terms. Like, I believe every human has a hard time dealing with change and stuff, but my ways of coping with those things are unhealthy. Um, so what happens is I just don't really cope with them, and then they become so enormous that yeah. I have to figure out a way to feel better. I would find that those cures or whatever, those things I was looking for to fix me would work for just a little while in my world, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, what if it was, you know, and like... A boot camp is a little different because it definitely is the straps are tightened down. Yeah, and, uh, there's no getting out yeah, of that, that one. Uh, kind of like jail or something, you know. Uh, I used to think uh, there was a time I thought when people said they were in jail that the sobriety time really didn't count, you mm. know, because I was like, well, you're, you know. Incarcerated, you were, yeah. But from what I understand, you can get whatever you want in jail <laughs> yeah. now. So, like, well, not necessarily. Maybe harder in some ways because I'm sure yeah. that the pressure to act on illegal activities in there is probably higher but i'd have changes in my life that would i would think were going to be the thing you know i could see and i'd be like looking forward to them Mm -hmm. you know thinking that when when you know i can't wait till i get there because when i get there that'll straighten me up i won't be able to you know i'll get this promotion at work and i won't be able to do what i've been doing or i get married and or i have a kid all these little things in my life that i thought would uh help me would uh i thought they would i truly did think they would fix me um uh, mm-hmm. and they would work for a little bit but there i would come you know once i got comfortable with the situation or whatever i right back to my old stuff destructive shit happened faster and faster each time too and yeah. my parents were disappointed i mean they knew it was coming i i got the court martial results maybe six months before i actually got discharged so about um, two years in did you say i was about in two years 
when I got kicked out. And what I, were you doing? Uh, so I got I got pretty high test um, scores on my ASVAB. It was just below a nuke, so you could split off into two, which was uh, elect electronic technician was an ET or a fire controlman who fire all the weapons. Um, but that's all electronic work, really. Um, so I was an FC, and so I was in school basically the entire time because it was one of so it was a six year enlistment commitment for that because two of it was school so i didn't even ever get out of the school no what were you doing that you fail in piss tests oh oh (laughs) well i mean all questions are good all the things but when i initially when i finally got the piss test so what had happened was um it's interesting it's just weird to think about all this because it does it seems like like i was a totally different person back then but uh, <clears throat> I was about 19, and they would just have these hotel parties and at people's, you know, and at people's apartments that you didn't know. So me and this girl Chelsea had gone to a party, and um, I had met a guy that I liked there. And when <clears throat> I woke up in the middle of the night, like um, he was like sexually assaulting me, but I was completely wasted. <clears throat> I got so drunk that night I was throwing up off the balcony and so I passed out on the floor. So that happened and he was um, in my school so uh, I, I knew who he was. It was a different guy than who I thought it was because I was so wasted I couldn't even I couldn't even identify him at first. And then what happened was though uh, I got I also was being extremely promiscuous during that time because like i when i'm in my active addiction like there's no holds bar so i got pregnant during that whole situation Mm. and of course to make my parents feel better and everything i blamed it on that guy because that's the easier softer way for me instead of admitting that i'm just a hoe bag you know it's easier to say that i'm a victim i'm a victim in this situation right so in true martyrdom form that's what I did. I carried that child and I put it up for adoption at the very end. Um, but of course, you know, I got all the self-pity and victim shit that I wanted. But I did drink and use. I drank for the beginning of that pregnancy. But I used smoked weed that entire pregnancy, which is one of those things that I don't I don't have a judgment call one way or the other. But, um, but as soon as I had that baby, they piss tested me. Hmm. I mean... Because they tried to piss test me once when I was pregnant, and I, like, pretend that I fainted so that they couldn't, and they took me to the hospital. It was ridiculous. So ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, so what I, yeah, so what I got kicked out for was just Weed. THC. So, it's interesting, though, because the day that I got out of the Navy, I got kicked out, and I got kicked out with about ten people that were all on hold at the same time. We all been partying together that whole oh, time. Yeah in the barracks after muster and we all got kicked out together so we all moved into this like three bedroom crappy uh, apartment that was i don't even know who was on the lease we just partied the shit out well anyways that night i got completely i did all the drugs passed out that night they came waking me up the next day at like 10 o'clock like out of a drug-induced coma saying um the world the world trade center has been hit so it was the very next day i got kicked out on september 10th of 2001 and then the next day so the point is my parents were so disappointed in me for getting kicked out of the military and that day they were so fucking grateful that i was no longer in the military 
But it didn't matter because I would never forgive myself. It took me years to be able to forgive myself for, for that because our alcoholism takes anything that it can to keep us to keep us down so we feel like shit about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So on that regard, do you mean like you feel bad because like you weren't able to, you, you failed the country, so to speak? Like you... I just failed, you know, I just failed myself failed and yourself. my family. More and yourself. The more I've done step work on it, it's just like everything else. My pride and ego yeah, right. were damaged mm-hmm. beyond yeah. repair. Yeah. Because I could, couldn't keep the lie up, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I've listened to some stories about some men... I kind of listen to a lot of military dudes, you know. I like listening to the SEALs and the Special <laughs> Forces and the Delta guys, these dudes who are certified badasses. And a lot of their stories are around the 9-11 because that changed the gears for our military. You know, they didn't have nothing to do from almost from Vietnam to uh, to 9-11 almost. Yeah, besides and, uh, the Gulf War. Yeah, a couple, there's a couple little things. There's yeah. some stuff, but... Uh, and uh, a guy getting hurt. You know, before, right before that, and he just kicked himself up and down because he wasn't. You know, he wanted to go fight. You mm-hmm. know, he this is the fight. That's the whole reason I've been in the military. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been waiting for this day, and here I freaking get hurt on training exercise, and I can't do it. Wow. And uh, so I didn't know if it was more of that flavor of of feeling like you dropped the ball and wasn't able to get in to you know because there are definitely some patriotic and some stuff. I I, I love my country. And I uh, would like to think that given the chance, I would uh, stand up for it in that way. I never did. Yes. But uh, Or if it was just a personal letdown of just one more nail in the coffin kind of thing where it just never was enough, you know. And now here I've really, this time I've proven it. <laughs> that I'm you just, know, This yeah. time I've really proved it. it. It's really, I am not a super, I, I love America. I, but I, the things I love about it maybe aren't as much the patriotism as the, it is like the kind of melting pot thing and that we're uh-huh. all sort of um, allowed to be here and like it's a free country. But I, I, I don't err on the side of being super patriotic, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. I was proud of myself for getting through what I got through there in the military, but I just couldn't stop using. Yeah. I could not stop using pregnant, not pregnant, military, not military, rules, no right, rules, yeah. it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't stop. And I wouldn't have put it this way because I hadn't been taken to any sort of 12-step program. It's weird that you get kicked out of the Navy for things like that. And at that time, that was 20 years ago now, they didn't send me to any yeah, sort of... go to treatment. Anything. They didn't send yeah. me to anything. Yeah, um, yeah that's uh, definitely something else that, you know, I don't know if they do that now or not. Probably. Uh, I would assume so. You know, I, I got kicked off my high school basketball team for smoking dope. Wow. And... Uh, and and actually something brought so one of these guys from that time come back in my life the other day one of the guys that got kicked off there's five of us got kicked off there's only two of us still alive holy moly uh is he in recovery uh no no (laughs) nope uh is he i mean is he i have i have a hard time saying what he is but i know he's still he's because when i told him i was you know i I just got you know because that's a big turning point in my life like then the chains come off yeah. You know, because I had no other reason to hang on anymore. You know, I was trying to be halfway the good guy so I could play ball and be, you know, so that kept me tampered down and kept me always not, you know, not getting out of control. And once I did have a man, it just, uh, the, 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 the tape broke on the box and I just went crazy. And I can look back now after doing this work and seeing those pivotal, moment, pivotal moments in my life that, that changed my trajectory pretty quick. And that was mm-hmm. one of them. And then we talked about when he called me the other day, and it's probably been a month now. 
uh, he brought some of that old stuff up and he talked about it. He said, well, they didn't even offer us any help. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> These know? days, I think it's uh, probably that, you know, it's a, you know, this is a this is an this is a problem that you can be given help for. You don't just kick you to the damn curb, mm-hmm. especially when you're you know you're young. Now the legal system offered me help and I wouldn't take it, so it's not like <laughs> I would say something would have changed back then. I know for a fact that when I was, I, I don't think I could have got well until I did. Uh, I, you weren't going to tell me I had a problem when I was a teenager or twenties or something like that, where I was going to take that seriously. Not enough bad stuff had happened yet. <laughs> well, yeah, and I I remember when I first got sober. You know, you still kind of want to blame other. I mean, you still want to find a reason why yeah. you're so fucked up and nobody else is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And my mom and I just remember kind of insinuating, like, well, like, well, if you knew I was so messed up, why didn't you take me to treatment? She was like. You were so angry. Like, you were so full of rage. I couldn't even bring up, like, Helping go take you. a shower. You know what I mean? Without you being crazy. Like, there was no way you were going to go to anywhere for... And I just... it It's funny how we... Like, it talks about in the big book. Like, we uh, provoke things in our past that then we feel like we're victims of in the moment, but we've sometime in the past provoked yeah, that behavior. on the toes of our fellows. And, and they retaliated. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, so. it is. It's, a, it's, it is such a weird, you know, I believe it's a disease. It's a mental disease is my best, closest mm-hmm. thing to say to it. It's no different than schizophrenia or bipolar or something like that. There's some wires loose that caused me to never have felt like I was enough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this parallel in it too of, you know, these, all these stories I get to hear, plus the ones that I listen to on the internet and everything have the same basic thread. Yep. Uh, when, it, you know, when we get here, we think we're unique. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then as time goes by, I realize it's almost cookie cutter. My sponsor has been sober quite a while. Uh, um, 37 years and he oh works in the field so he's a outpatient wow. chemical dependency counselor and uh, he said he's talking about it, he's like the attic whisperer <laughs> uh, he educates people on this disease yeah. and it rings the bell rather than you'll see you hear time and time again where people have heard him you know speak about this thing as a disease and uh and and it'd be a turning point in somebody's recovery because finally they heard something that made them quit fighting it you know and said oh well okay and uh he talks about such a cookie cutter thing of people coming in through the doors and you know they're trying to pull the wool over his eyes and trying to you know do all yeah. the stuff that addicts try to do when you're that bobbing you're and that weaving. tuned because he is one too yep uh and then you give him that education that he's had from his his real education not to mention the practical application of treating us day in and day out mm-hmm. uh, you don't walk in there and uh, put your mask <laughs> on and fool him yeah uh, but we're so this such same song and dance all the time mm-hmm. so back to the getting out of kicked out of the military and it was nine <coughs> eleven was the next day 9-11 was the next day, and then um, I just, I carried on on that trajectory for a while. I mean, we ended up obviously getting evicted from that apartment. That's definitely an interesting thing, too, that everybody getting kicked oh out and go, we'll just go move in together. In you this know, one we'll, big, it was yeah. just a party. Oh, my God. They so defined bad. us as the trouble, and they removed <laughs> all of us in our water trouble, just moved over here <laughs> together. I'm sure that apartment complex was super happy to have us there. <laughs> so bad. 
And then, um, so yeah, so that went on. I remember I got a job at Walmart and I mean, I'm not allowed to work at Walmart anymore <laughs> ever again for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, I just could not keep it together. Like I couldn't keep it together. I was unemployable and I was just a hot mess all the time. And, um, at some point I can't remember. Oh, when I couldn't work at Walmart anymore, this guy named Luke Bataluco who I found out later had escaped from Rikers Island. Got, I mean, he got the shit beat out of him and thrown back in. But, I mean, he was one of the only people that had ever, like, success, successfully escaped and swam across that waterway. But they were waiting for him when he got back on the other side. And they beat the shit out of him and put him back in. But he needed a helper. And so, like, I obviously, I mean, I could not keep a job with any sort of real company. And... I remember the guy whose place I was taking um, said, you know, do you know how to paint and caulk and stuff? And, of course, I didn't. So I was like, ah, totally, you know. (laughs) So when I got hired, um, he, like, it was obvious I didn't know what I was doing. But you know what? It turns out, like, Luke could use something else for me. You know what I mean? And he was willing to pay me for it. So for a while there that's what i did for him i was basically just like his uh hooker on hand which is Mm. unfortunate but that's what i remember when i come in these when i see young ladies come in this room like we have done so many things to shame ourselves so far down we didn't do that overnight and it takes a long time to fix some of those behaviors and recovery to the point where i'm pretty sure i haven't (laughs) haven't fixed them all even yet at 12 years and um so, but I did, like, so I'd met some other painters and stuff just because we would go to the bar every night, like, after we got done working. Uh, we would go to the bar, and we would meet other people. So I ended up getting a job with a company called Production Painting. And I was on a crew with a guy, Ray, Ned, and Conrad, and they were all, like, crackheads. I mean, just typical painters. It, it, and we were called the short bus. Like, we were the the short bus of the company they probably had like five crews and um ray was the driver but you know we'd go paint they were hard working they taught me how to paint they taught me how to work um there was mutual respect you know among the crew in its own way it, it was sort of autonomous in that way too like that group figured out what law worked and then we get beer on the way back to the shop and it was in virginia beach i lived once oh. i got kicked out of the navy i stayed in virginia well, beach and so we would get um, back to the shop, you know, we'd have our, uh, six packs in our backpacks and I had lost my license cause I got a DUI at some point. And so we would just ride our bikes down the beach and drink and party there, you know, wash all the paint off us in the ocean. And then the next day just start all over again. And it was, uh, it was enjoyable in its own way, but I was 21 or 22 at that time. I mean, it was in no way parallel to like women, like girls that I went to high school with and stuff. Like I was in gifted classes my whole life and everything. Like what they were doing in their twenties was not, I knew that what I was doing again was abnormal behavior for 
you know, what societal norms were for me. Yeah, that's a, I have a voice that's been telling me for a long time as I explored a new thing, like a new drug or a new group of friends or a, mm-hmm. uh, some new activity that nudged me and said, you know, Dan, you probably ought not be doing this. <laughs> yeah, yep. And, uh, but I always overrode that, you know, and then and, and another one of them self-esteem things, you know, because once I went past that point of that true me saying, trying to get my attention, saying, Dan, don't. And I do it anyway. Yeah. And there I am a couple more notches down on the self-esteem ladder, you know. And then I hit a new one and more, a couple more steps down as I kept on doing stuff that uh, I my, was... my heart was telling me that I probably shouldn't, you know. This, this is probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Don't take that acid. Yeah. Don't, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hang out with these particular people. Mm-hmm. But it's some, you know, but like I said, there's, just, there's also this other thing in there like almost, a, I can almost like, I've got to be careful because I kind of can romanticize that pretty quick about like hell free as a bird riding down yep. the beach backpack full of beer man taking a bath in the ocean just yep I convinced myself it was the life there for a while and Ned who it turns out his name was Robert I knew him for four years before he told me his real name was Robert Brooks but he, I'd known him as Ned Hill he had just taken Ned Flanders from the Simpsons and Hank Hill from King of the Hill oh, and made his name yeah. Ned Hill so that's when I had some indication that he was fucking crazy and that I had been like basically he had been my mentor for the last four years and he was nuts but I mean he was every Friday he got paid he would say I'm getting a rock and a freak that's what he'd say every Friday so that's the kind of stuff that I had normalized in my life at that point yeah um, and it's hard to denormalize that stuff and I have found that now even in recovery um, I if left to my own devices and I'm not practicing these principles in all my affairs and I'm not inviting God in, I go back to looking for those, that kind of person, the kind of person that is doing shit that I want to normalize in my life, even in recovery. And it's, it's, it's some crazy thinking that happens. Yep. You know, and, uh, yeah, so that happened, and then, um, I don't know, life just kind of went on like that for a while. I did, I opened my own painting business because, as in all alcoholics, like, I have whatever ideas of grandeur, I have, you know, whatever, egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Like, at some point, I no longer was going to take, you know, take any sort of authority from anyone, you know, and I thought I could do it better. Yeah. And, uh, and they're paying me eight dollars an hour or whatever you know whatever, whatever. but yeah. they're getting paid this much so hell i'll do it and i'll take the whole thing up yep and he's gonna tell me i do it i've been painting for five years i know what i'm fucking doing you know so whatever so i own my own painting business for a while but i mean even in recovery to this day i'm still working on learning what financial manageability looks like and what um lack of fear of financial insecurity looks like so I did not have it then, and I did not have any understanding of money or business or anything. So I worked a lot. I made a lot of money, but I but I ultimately ended up going back and working for that guy's competitor in Virginia Beach. But at that point, my boyfriend had left me, you know. Um, he had left me so far as to move to Wyoming from Virginia <laughs> Beach. Like, yeah, no, he was getting Went the hell the other away side from of the me. country. And I remember, because every night I would get off that, um, and if we didn't ride down to the beach, we all just hung out at the shop. Well, it was me, 21, and like 30, 40-year-old dudes, you know, and um, 
we just drank, party. But like once, uh, once or twice a week, I would call Bill drunk as shit from the payphone because this was before cell phones. I did not have a cell phone yet. Um, and he, I would be like puking and laying in my own vomit on Virginia Beach Boulevard and he'd have to come get me. I mean, this was once or twice a week. There were times he would make dinner for us and I would be out smoking crack with whoever, you know, and I wouldn't show up till like two in the morning. I mean, I just, like, I, lo- I in that time in my life felt like I loved him, but frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices it wasn't enough loving him being in the military having a job like none of that is enough to keep me from using it's crazy it is crazy it's crazy yeah that's it you know and that's everything and just uh, we we sit here and tell these stories about this crazy insane stuff we've done yeah and then when i got here that second step about restore me to sanity uh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> like, let's talk to you. And had a good sponsor said, oh, okay, let's, uh, let's talk some stories. You don't think that was crazy? <laughs> yes, it was. And it's really, especially like with some time in recovery, like I forget how crazy I was. Yeah. I never, I rarely think about drinking think. again, but I can kind of think well maybe i wasn't that bad maybe i was just in my 20s you know what i mean so in my wild oats (laughs) yeah like i don't know if i was that crazy yeah and i watched the friends do that where i had these friends that drank with me a lot and and i was in particular i can think about when everybody else was in college and i was that age (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh and yeah and you know they went on with their lives like you know they went to college and got a degree and married their sweetheart and had kids and went on with their lives, you know, and, and matured. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wasn't even about to do that, you know, no. and, and I couldn't even see it then. It just meant that, you know, I was going to shift groups of who I'm hanging around with, you know, and this ain't working anymore. You know, they were fun when they were partying. Yeah. Uh, once they actually went on with life uh, and put that down and, and I didn't, you know, it took until I got here for me to see that. Uh, mm. So many things, you know, happen, I say, in the rearview mirror where I look back and I see how many friends I had who died uh, from a time I was 14 or 15 years old yeah. that looked like suicide and looked like car accidents and looked like other things like that. Those were the two big ones, either car accidents or suicides that were ultimately alcoholism. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I know that's what that was now. Yeah. Uh, and, but their disease had progressed past in a short amount of time or whatever, you know, got got Worse, bad fast. Quickly, yeah. And to the point of committing suicide. And, you know, I mean, that's a normal thing in our circles. People kill themselves, whether it's on an accident or on purpose, way too damn regularly. And, yeah. and coming here, I was like, oh, I see what that, because i got a dozen friends that I went to school with by the time I was 25 that are not with us any longer. And every single one of them are tied to alcohol or dope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was before the ODA days. Oh, yeah. You know, nobody was overdosing. It was all, yeah, just a result of the actual alcoholism. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, the guy I went to, another prideful moment for my parents. Uh, And when I was a sophomore, I went to the senior prom with this guy named Raymond Johnson Jr. He was a senior, but he was 21. My parents were not happy with yeah. me. Um, but I wasn't dating him or anything. But we were friends, and um, he he didn't drink, and he didn't use, like I did. He was sort of my enabler. You know, he got me whatever I wanted, but he just didn't. He was always protective of me. 
he died when I had about four years sober of a heroin overdose. I mean, it just is crazy. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't. Yeah, I can relate to you too. I had the same kind of experiences about embarrassing my folks and my knee, like when I got kicked off the basketball team. Mm-hmm. You know, there was in the paper, and you know, we were all juveniles, uh, and you know, DUIs and other getting picked up for narcotics and stuff. Because here in New Albany, if you got in trouble when I was a kid, your name went in the paper. Oh, Madison's the same and, way. Uh, yep. And time after time after time, mom and dad had the joy of uh, little Dan here making the paper again and it's no longer for high score of the basketball team yeah because uh, <laughs> yep. at one point in my life i had a lot of those articles in yeah me too the new omni tribune but uh the, the tables turned uh i tell that one of the things is that when i finally ended up getting the big charges for breaking in the house and stealing pills uh my my name that never made it to the paper wow you know only thing i can tell is you know some turning point and i call it a miracle too, that you know that last time mom and dad were spared the pain that embarrassment and pain from yeah. their now 45 year old son yeah still making the paper yeah and i was scared to death of that i remember i would get to i would look in the paper every single day for that to come out i mean that and was the primary did. reason i stayed in virginia beach when uh when i got kicked out of the navy because i liked the anonymity i did not want my name in the madison paper anymore I mean, to the point, Mom was still calling me and telling me whose name was in the Madison paper. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she still does. It's kind of a little protective old. thing on both sides, you know. You're not having, you're sparing your parents of that. Yeah. And you yeah. can kind of be, like you said, anonymous in a in a bigger city like that where my name makes the paper, no big deal. Yep. Nobody knows. Nobody knows who you are. Yeah, it's crazy. So, I don't know what happened. Uh, so... Yeah, that was... Okay, so then I did another geographical cure. The boyfriend moved to Wyoming. My business had gone under, and I was just working $13 an hour. And my sister had moved to Maryland, to D.C., Maryland. D.C. area, but it was in Annapolis. Um, And so it was just another geographical cure. And that time I truly convinced myself, like, I won't go to the places I know where I can get stuff, you know, I'll stay home, I'll be good. So, you know, I I moved there and she said I could live in her attic for two months and, you know, until I found a job and all that stuff. Well, <clears throat> I would sit up in the attic and play guitar and read and smoke weed and I thought, like, this is manageable. Like, I, this is fine, you know, like, this is a manageable life but i mean it didn't take very long it felt like a long time it probably was like two weeks i the the hamster started running right like i if i you know and it started out with like well you know i mean i can't be up here and not be social forever you know what i mean and so i went to some shitty bar it's crofton cantina or something it was so bad um you know and basically just spent my entire time in the bathroom doing cocaine off the toilet uh and then I went to an, okay, so then my sister and her husband got divorced in the midst of all this. And so she was going through a big depression. We went to this crappy bar on the other end of town and like it, the Perry's was the bar up top, which was just a shitty bar. But then there was like a shittier bar called Odie's underneath. And like, that's where all the cokeheads were, you know, it was just gross down there. And that's like, I felt right at home there. And she ended up hooking up with the cook that worked up at Perry's. Well, she ended up getting pregnant, who, I mean, my niece is now uh, I'm turning 12 in 
in a couple weeks. And uh, she, uh, and the thing is, that guy, he came into our lives, and like my my ex husband um, ended up sponsoring him and stuff because he was he was in and out. He was a crackhead, in and out, in and out, in and out. And at this point, as of today, he went missing like four years ago, and they've never seen him again. And he had done it before in Baltimore. But um, so my sister married another man who, I mean, Maddie knows that that's not her dad, but for all intents and purposes, that's her dad. Yeah. And it all worked out and whatever. But um, th- I just remember the one thing about Jason, who was her baby daddy, I remember is that he was a Jehovah's Witness, which there's nothing wrong with that. You can have whatever religious affiliation you want, but he was the first person that I ever met in recovery that had such a specific idea of God he could not get with the uh, God of your own understanding. Mm. He couldn't. He wouldn't. He refused. And so he, I mean, I'm not saying that's why he died, but I mean, in my mind, he wasn't open-minded. Like, that's a huge part of this thing, right? Like, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. And even if he had the other two, he just could not get with that. Yep, over and over again. It's one of the points that I talk about whenever I'm working with a guy new. All the little areas in there where it says you got to let, it says in some way or another, you got to let go of your old ideas. And it says that specifically in one spot. Yeah. Uh, that we have to be able to do that. And it's not to say that your system is faulty. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. It's just not working. It's not working. <laughs> like, if it worked, you wouldn't be yeah. smoking crack yeah. behind the yeah. 7-Eleven. Yeah. So. Somebody told me this one point, and it's the two hardest people in the world to sponsor are the atheist and the born-again Christian. Oh, my gosh. Because neither one of them are willing to to look at any other new thing. They are not. They don't have any open-mindedness. That's hard to deal with, you know. And, and, I mean, in recovery, like, there's got to be some willingness to yeah. realize that what you're doing is not working. So, like yeah, you said. And, and, you know, I even say, you know, I say, look, you, you can, you might just circle all the way back around to that being your higher power yep. later on. But for whatever reason, the price of admittance is to let all that go for a little bit mm-hmm. and, and look at it differently. Uh, yep. It seems to be a requirement. Uh, rarely do I see if you can't have some if you can't have that level of open mindedness, this thing just can't find its way in you. No. Nope. Yeah. So I would. I would. Uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying about that. Yeah. I, I have not. I don't have any experience with Jehovah Witnesses at all. Uh, but they definitely have their. Uh, they're specific known to have their view, specific view of God yeah. dogma that they stay with. Mm-hmm. And so that was, so it was near the, the, the my bottom. Um, I had, I um, had a job as a, I had gotten a job as a maintenance tech at this big apartment complex in, um, in uh, College Park, Maryland. They built a brand new one right by the, by University of Maryland. It was mm. 508 units right by the Ikea. And it had all indoor hallways, the whole 1.8 miles of indoor hallways. So they needed a painter. So it just so happened I had met the maintenance supervisor at a bar one day just by happenstance. And he kept meeting up with me every two weeks, which I thought was weird. But he always had his wife with him, so it didn't feel like he was, like, being weird. And eventually he offered me a job. And But to get that job, I had to pass a piss test. is actually... I forgot about this. So I was living with this lady who drank a lot, but never used drugs. And I just could not. I knew the piss test was coming, but I just could not stay off the drugs, any drugs. And so I had her. Oh, I remember. I, 
I stayed off of everything for like five days, so I thought I was okay. I mean, I was a miserable yeah, piece of shit, but I... Your teeth for five yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, I could drink at night or whatever, but I mean, I was just miserable. And um, so I went and took the piss test, but because I was so nervous about it, I drank a bunch of that clean your piss out stuff, the detox stuff that's like, it's so gross. But um, I drank a bunch of it. And so that night I went out and just, I took all the drugs. Like I got all the drugs and I took them all. The night before? No, the night, uh, like I got the piss test. I went and took the piss test that night. I just was like, yeah, you know, and I just went out and I did all the drugs. About three o'clock the next day, I get a phone call on my flip phone because this was like before iPhones. And uh, uh, it's my to-be boss. And he said, you're going to have to go back to the piss test place. Your piss was too clear. Yeah, diluted. It's, yeah, it's you have to there. re-piss. And I was like, no, no, no. Nope. <laughs> That's not fucking happening. Sorry. You know what I mean? And uh, he was like, well, you got to. I'll come get you. I was like, fuck. So I went out and talked to the girl I was living with. And she peed in a condom. And I popped it up inside myself. And I got there. And that's how I got that job. Wow. Was, I had a safety pin on my zipper. And I had that condom that I put up inside me. And I just squeezed it out in the cup in the <laughs> So, like, oh, my God. Talk about, like, comp- incomprehensible demoralization. Yeah. is like, crazy. But um, but I got that job, and it was a good job. It came with good benefits. They had, like, an education reimbursement program where they always reimbursed me in case, as long as I kept my, like, average as a C. So I got my associate's degree while I was working there and everything. Um, <clears throat> but, anyways, before I, but I worked there about a year before I got sober. So, for that whole time, I mean, I was up all night doing cocaine and shit until, like, 6 in the morning. I would sleep, do that thing where I'm like, if I go to sleep now, I'll get an hour and a half before I go to work. Well, I spent that first year, most of the time, sleeping in a closet in that 508-unit property. You know, lucky I didn't get fired. But, um, anyway, so I just remember I, uh, I was doing that every night. And at this point, my sister was about five to six months pregnant near the end of my run there and i was still living in her attic but i was paying her rent at the time because her husband had left and stuff and um but i was still bringing all those people from the bar there every oh, night yeah. you know like every night after the bar closed every morning we were friends always there. over yeah using grandma's mirror you know whatever i mean just real crazy shit and so i remember the last night like i was already getting to the point because the Francois, he was not as fancy as he sounds, but he was the bartender at Odie's in that downstairs bar. Well, he was the one that kept my pockets stocked. I mean, he always came up and gave me packages. But, I mean, he required his own form of payment that I was willing to give. Um, he was married and everything. And I wasn't attracted to him at all, but that didn't matter, you know, at all. And uh, he, uh, but at some point, the tables turned and I remember one night i got myself like an eight ball or something and he was like dude i'm out of money like hook me up i was like nah (laughs) you know like nah mm -mm." and so i just remember i went up into my little attic that i was living in at my sister's and at this point like i didn't even want to go down to see her to go to the bathroom so i had one of her kitchen pots that i was peeing in every night because i just didn't even want to go down there and make eye contact with another human being because i'm just so disgusted with myself and so i did that whole eight ball that night but i remember 
like Dang. the last line like i remember thinking like this is gonna kill me i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna die like i could already i was already like my heart was about ready to explode but i didn't die um but i just remember that being like even this wasn't enough to fucking make me feel okay like even this yeah. isn't enough yeah. and now what else had happened simultaneously is the geographical cure had happened. I'd met these cool people at this bar. They all thought I was cool. They thought I had some character. They thought I was a good person. The, the veil had been lifted, and the truth is I'm a, just a big black hole that'll take, I'll use whatever means necessary to take what you have. Well, that gig was up. And so it's just another group of people that knew I was just fucking nothing yeah. except for an addict. So, <clears throat> But at this point, I'd never really been introduced to the program. I went to one NA meeting when I got kicked out of the Navy and, like, held it hostage for like 25 minutes like every newcomer you know yeah, what i mean yeah for my weed problem or whatever and then like left but um so that next day i came home from i don't i guess i was at work the next day it was a tuesday i came home and i just like basically vomited this fifth step on my sister and i said like this is the shit that's going on you know this is what's happening like this thing with Francois and like all this shit. I just vomited it all out there. And I truly believed, I was 28 years old. I truly believed that she was my sister. I'd done all the things with her at some point. You know, she wasn't no angel. But I really thought she was going to be like, chalk it up to your 20s. Like, dust yourself off. You get back up. We all go through it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, but when I got done talking, and this girl's from my same gene pool and background and everything. I mean, her jaw was on the floor. She yeah. said, Lindsay, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, I've never done any of that stuff. And so everybody's moment of clarity, like, looks different. But that was my moment of clarity. That was the moment where I realized that all this shit that I had normalized in my life <clears throat> and surrounded myself with people that made this seem like normal behavior, it was not normal behavior. Like, the gig was up right then. Like, I realized, mm. like, I needed to do something different so like to me that was the first time i'm sure god had planted many thoughts in my head over the years but i just this was the first one that i truly believe must have been planted there by him because i'd never had any experience in recovery and what came out of my mouth was like maybe i need to go to aa or na or something and um so she's like now Chris is of the, you know, Charlie Sheen sort of mentality. Like, she definitely thinks AA is a cult. But she cares more about me than she cared about that. So she didn't say any of those words that night. She printed me out of where and when. And she, like, put little highlights and stars next to the meetings she knew I could get to with my schedule. And so mm -hmm. it was crazy. That was a Tuesday night. And I used that day. So Wednesday, was a, there was a meeting at this place called... Uh, I, I, the, no. No. On Tuesday night, I went to a meeting that she had, like, a little star thing by. It just so happened there was no meeting that night. So, like, that first 24 hours, I white-knuckled it. I didn't have the solution of the steps. I didn't have the solution of the book. Yeah, I, ha I didn't, and then I also didn't have the solution of the fellowship, which right, in right. early recovery is all you fucking got. It sure does, yeah. It's all you got. I'm so and, thankful for the buckets of hope ooh. was poured on me early on because that's the only thing that got me day to day. Mm-hmm. And, and it's sometimes when I'm resting on my laurels, it what gets me through to the next time yep. I'm ready to do the fucking work. It's crazy, you know? Yep. And so, um, 
So that next night was Wednesday night. And at this point, I was maintenance. I hadn't showered in, in, uh, in weeks. And my boss bought me a toothpaste and a toothbrush because I didn't have enough money to buy any. And, I mean, it had been months. I mean, it had been months. And I'm sure for his own... <laughs> Yeah, it's like I have to get this girl some basic hygiene in here. <laughs> yeah, because she's killing me, dude. She's killing me. And uh, so, and how I didn't lose my job, like, I truly believe that was a, God was. Yeah, something divine going on there. Something happening there. Um, and so that for, that Wednesday, there was a 7 o'clock meeting, I think it was at South Shore Recovery Club, which is kind of like a token club here, but they didn't have, like, a concession stand and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was just a place, there was yeah, always yeah. meetings. But, you know, it was before smartphones, and so I freaking printed out a map quest, and I couldn't find it, because it was like this weird little turnoff, so I was late to the first meeting. So a lot of times, meeting houses and stuff are in these little weird places that don't look like where they <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, like... make them real easy to find, usually. AA, like a big flashing sign, yeah. that like, AA here, yeah. there's none of that going yeah. on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it was on a map quest thing, so I just kept driving by it, and it's just like, ugh. So, I went in there. I was late. Um, I hadn't showered. I had tried. I tried to chop some wood with a newly sharpened hatchet like a few days before, but I was completely wasted, and it slipped off the top of the wood and sliced my foot in half. So I had like one of my sister's curtains from the garage wrapped around my toe and flip flops when I went into that first meeting. Yeah, I always say I tried to give myself a pedicure <laughs> with a hatchet. <laughs> like it was bad, and um, so I was just rough. It was rough. and um, You ring a lot of bells on me, and that's a funny thing about sitting here is that one of the things about doing the podcast is like it brings back memories of things that I kind of set, set aside, you know, because yeah. I, I was cutting asparagus down with a machete one time, loaded, you know, <laughs> hung over essentially. Yeah. But uh, probably was on something else and slipped and just basically chopped my foot off with the machete. I didn't chop it off, but I laid into it and I damn near chopped my big toe off. Uh Oh my gosh! And you know, and it takes later on. You know, I know that shit don't happen sober, right? That, yeah. that, and even though I wasn't like did it, it was in the morning. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that. Uh, so yeah, you. It's it's interesting that because now when you see somebody dragging their ass in, you know, in those kind of positions, you know, you never know. You no. know, the person comes in at night and they got sunglasses on, they take them off, they got two black eyes, you know, you get, you know, it's any number of things of way we come dragging our asses into a meeting and, uh, oh my God. go here after, uh, uh, just a small accident with a hatchet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Um, and that's why I have to be careful not to get so much time that I forget. I mean, that's why working with newcomers is so it crucial because I green. keeps me remembering why I don't want to go back there yep, again. Yep. I know for a fact that if it wasn't for that, then my brain has already proven to me a number of times through my stumbles in AA of uh, getting a start and stopping and getting, you know, yep. that, uh, that I have to be in the middle of it. I can't, I can't play around on the perimeter or outside edges. No, hell I no. have to be in the middle of it. No. Yeah. I mean, I, my sponsor, when I first got sober was very, I I never understood what she meant that I had the gift of desperation because my experience was the only experience I had. But since I've been sober now, like not everybody has that when they come in and it takes a long time and some people never make it. And it's sad to watch, you know, so it truly was a gift. I just didn't feel like it at the time, you know, how'd that first meeting go with that? I mean, at night. So that meeting was called the wrath of grapes and 
this crazy the girl, the Wrath of Grapes, this crazy girl named Beth who was crazy. She smoked like 8 million cigarettes a day and she talked like this. She's a pretty girl, but she was just rough. And this guy named Fred who was at my wedding, you know, uh, five years later. I mean, they were at the front leading the meeting, but it, it all was sort of so foreign to me. I didn't really understand what was going on. And I was late, so I felt uncomfortable. Um, but... Um, I, don't, I don't really remember what the meeting was about, um, but I do, at the very end, they asked, does anybody have 24 hours or less or a desire for a new way of life? And again, I didn't know what that meant because I hadn't been there, but yeah. I knew that it applied to me. So I was sobbing when I went up there and got my first chip. And, um, and it was, the tears were because, again, my pride had gotten to the point where I realized this was the last house on the block and I truly believed it wasn't going to work for me because my pride is so gigantic and everywhere I go I take myself with me so I was certain AA was going to be another failed attempt at, <clears throat> at trying to do something different but I went up there and got that 24 hour chip and uh, I had spent my entire life at that point with 30 old men so I went to the first dirty old man I saw as soon as the meeting ended oh but I will say, at that first meeting, everybody held hands and said the Lord, Lord's Prayer, which I didn't know the words to, because my parents, my dad's an atheist, my mom's social churchgoer, you know what I mean? And uh, so they said the Lord's Prayer, and the unity that I felt at that moment, I just remember thinking, like, I want to learn that so that I'm a part of. It was the first thing that I was like, God, it would be cool to know that so that I could be a part of what everybody yeah. else is doing. I get cold chills just thinking about it. Yeah, me too. I just thought, you know, same time, first meeting I went to, you know, got court ordered to some meetings when I was young from DUIs and stuff, but I don't, I have absolutely no memory of them other than I know one of them is right down here in New Albany. I know where wow. I was at. Yeah. Uh, now I spoke there, right? Yeah. Uh, but at the time, I didn't. But then that night on, uh, it was March of 26 of 2011, which is four years before my current sobriety date. So, wow. Uh, but I remember when they held hands and said the Lord's Prayer, I, I was crying. Wow. But the group really poured a lot of hope on me at night because I did the dumb stuff that newcomers do. Like when they said, is this anybody's, is anybody first AA meeting? You know, I didn't know what that was going to mean, but it applied to me, like you said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, so and then they did that pause that what I know today is to see if anybody else is just slow raising their hand, right? Mm -hmm. You know, give everybody a minute and there's that pause. Well, I didn't know that's what that was. And I mistaked it for that I was supposed to say some stuff. And, uh, <laughs> so I was pretty brief. I didn't go on the whole newcomer hold hostage thing. Yeah. You know, but I was real brief about it. But I said, you know, uh, I'm... I'm three days sober, uh, you know, and just laid out where I was at at the moment, you know, yeah. and that allowed them all to have some ammunition to pour back on me. So God did something there and made me, you know, that because I shared, because I opened myself up a little bit, that allowed the group to open up oh, no doubt. to me and pour a lot of hope into me. Uh, and I remember cr I cried a number of times that night and, uh, and just beat up. But, you mm -hmm. know, I still wasn't, you know, I Last got a year of sobriety out of that run. Yeah. But I put everything down. You know, a little over a year later, man, I conquered this thing and didn't need this shit no more. And uh, that's what I mean about my history. I know that uh, putting it down and resting on my laurels uh, got me in more trouble than I was in in the first place. Mm. I went in on a, off basically a bad weekend. It was just a bad weekend was what had me in there in March of 2011. Yeah. Just a regular old bad weekend. 
Mm. And you know, four years later, I'm in there because I'm scared to death that I'm going to go to prison for six to 20 years. Wow. But I, I hear you back on that. Uh, yeah, that there's some power in those places that's oh. unknown and you don't have to know a thing about it uh, to, to feel it. Like you said, you don't have to know the prayer. You don't have to be able to understand any of the 12 speakies that we no, use in there. Uh, but you can tell something is going on in here. And yes. one of two things happens. Either your disease is ready to pack bags and get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> or you're attracted and think, hey, uh, this Maybe. might be something I want. Yeah, and you said something that I remember when I, like, when I share now, I realize but didn't realize then that, like, even though I looked terrible when I went in that first meeting and I didn't, and, like, I looked rough and I'm sure everybody could be like, girl, need some help. You know what I'm yeah. saying? When I went up there and got that 24-hour chip, it let everybody know that I was willing to accept some help. And I yep. believe that's a huge part of it, you know. Um, it but is so, just these little things we yep. do like that that mean so much, you know. We'll be some new guy, and I'll tell him, you know, we're going to go to your first day meeting tonight, and I'm going to go with you. Yeah. So you'll have to go by yourself because I know how hard it is no. to walk in there by yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you know, okay, here's what's going to happen. They're going to ask if anybody's first time at AA, and you should raise your hand. Yeah. And at the end, they're going to say, "Hey, is anybody want a white chip?" And you should go up and get one, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and try to hold your hand a little bit through yeah. that process. Because uh, it is scary as shit. Yeah, but it does. There's that 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 walking up there getting that white chip means a whole lot more than just going and getting that white chip. Yeah. You have uh, your. I, when I get a chance to give away chips, I this is a demonstration to the universe, to the people in this room, and to yourself that you're ready for some change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, and once you do that, they were able to start. You know, I'm sure what people were talking to you after a meeting, right? <laughs> well, I went up to Frankie, who I mean, I knew later. Um, is this the dirty old man? <laughs> because he stayed sober. But that first meeting, like, that was my comfort level. So I went right up to him. And I always say this, but I'm sure I one of two things. Like, he was either working a program that day or, like, uh, unwilling to deal with my hygiene situation at the moment. But either way, he escorted me to the group of women that had some time in that group, you know, and... Those women, um, probably there was a gaggle of them is the best I can describe it. There was probably six or seven of them, and they all had different ranges of time. Probably the most, the girl that had the most time maybe had like 10 years, and there were some people that didn't have much more time than me, but I remember I went up to them, and, you know, they were like, oh, so happy you're here, keep coming back, and, you know, it was just like disgustingly antisocial by that time, you know what I mean? And... I just was like, I remember though saying, so I've been to, I've been to this meeting, so am I good for a while? <laughs> and they yeah. were like, hell no, girl, you should go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I'm grateful that there are some suggestions that are not in the big book because obviously the big book, there wasn't 90 meetings in 90 days to, really yeah. to go to when they wrote that, but that was something that was super helpful to me, and I broke all the traditions. I was going to CDA, which is Chemical Dependent Anonymous. I was going to NA. I was going to AA. My first year, I was like a attention whore. At my first year celebration, I celebrated all three of those. I went to like uh, celebrate recovery, but I went to ninety meetings in ninety days. But I mean, I fucked it all up. But yeah, I remember. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know 
like you said, it doesn't say 90 and 90 either. I don't know that it means 90 AA meetings, mm-hmm. you know? Get your ass in a meeting. I don't yeah. care if you're at an overeaters meeting. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think I actually went to an overeaters meeting. meeting one time, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would I would support that. Yeah. I would. I mean, any of that over yeah. Not skipping going. one day. Yep. Because, uh, golly, it is just so hard. Mm-hmm. Day by day, man, to do that. And that's what, like, uh, when the TVs used to go off in the middle of the night. And there'd be them rainbow colored striped and bars and it yeah. would just be static. You know, just be going <sighs> That static would be what I woke up with every morning. And that static would get louder and louder and louder. And I knew one way to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Put some in me. But I found that going to a meeting turned it down turned it to down. manageable. Mm-hmm. And I could make it to the morning and then the volume would come up again. And I remember that, you know, again, it's hindsight, it's rearview mirror stuff. But day after day after day, and, you know, gradually that static started getting quieter. Yeah. You know, and golly, it helped, you know. It, and I, I equate it to like my attic my like my attic voice as opposed to my god voice like as your god voice was getting stronger your attic voice was getting getting less right yep but even in recovery sometimes the balance shifts sometimes yep depending on the maintenance of my spiritual yeah i can turn around sometimes saying that noise is as loud as ever (laughs) you know just don't have you're sober you know Uh and, and working a program and doing a lot putting a bunch of my life energy into into a recovery life yep and uh and and i can spin around and have that stack as loud as ever Mm-hmm. yep that's been my recent experience and i think i mean i'm not blaming the whole COVID situation but COVID definitely changed what i was doing for aa and therefore it inadvertently i didn't realize it was happening but it changed the way i was working my program yeah. like it was so subtle that i didn't know it was happening until i realized i was making a bunch of alcoholic decisions uh, with 12 years sober, <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's yep. crazy. I mean, we, we are not cured. No. What we have is a daily reprieve. Um, so that, so then what happened was... I love those newcomer stories. It's the, because we see them happen again, right? Yeah. You know, and listening to yours, I, I like that. So those women, um, Melody was the one who had the most time. And I love I, that you remember their names too. Oh yeah. Well, she was in my life when I left Maryland seven years later, you know, they, a lot of them were, it's really, cause when I got sober, that's what everybody kept telling me, stick with the winners. Well, the winners are the people that are jumping over chairs to get to the newcomers before they get out of the room. And yeah. that's how you can tell who the fucking winners are. And that's who the, the you know, you need to stick yeah. with. And, uh, so Melody, <laughs> uh, she told me later on, I also think it's funny because Okay, so they all gave me, like, their business cards and shit, you know what I mean? But I could tell by what they had shared in the meeting that they weren't always the way they are now. But they weren't in the current state that I was in. So it was enough to intrigue me. They gave me their business cards and shit, and uh, they're like, okay, just, you know, keep coming back and call me if, you know, you need a ride or anything. And I had a car, but for whatever reason, that next day, I called Melody and her and this other girl came and picked me up. It wasn't until six months later she said, <clears throat> well, I didn't ever tell you this, but now that you're more emotionally stable, I'll tell you. Every time you called me for a ride, I would go <laughs> pick somebody else up first before I picked you up because I thought you were an axe murderer. <laughs> That's what she told me. That's good, though. I mean, you know, we tell you, I, well, don't go on 12-step calls by yourself. Mm-mm. No, Take absolutely. a friend. Go yep. take somebody with you. Yeah. She was working a program in that way, but... She was. Oh, I yeah, I, I had about four months sober. Um, 
And I had a sponsor named Patty, and she was great. She had like 22 years, and she loved me until I could love myself. She was my sponsor my first five years. Um, but I remember I met this girl named Cindy at a meeting. And by then, you know, I had four months sober. I was like super AA, you know, like had my cape on and everything and was just, you know, going to save the world. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and on fire for AA, as they say. And so that girl, Cindy, called me about a week later. And I forgot, but she called on a Tuesday night at like two in the morning fucking wasted and you know i put on my aa cape and i flew on over there to her house you know and dumped out her alcohol and gave her my big book and uh you know i was super proud of myself that moth's driving me nuts huh yeah um so i was super proud of myself you know and so uh, the next day, you know, I called my sponsor. Guess what I did? Guess what I did? Like, I'm so excited. I'm so proud of myself, you know, and I'm going to tell you all about it. And so I told the story. And when we got done, there was like that awkward sponsor pause, you know, and yeah. she was like, so do you think that was the best idea? And I was like, I mean, I was so, uh, felt like I was so entitled to some like attaboy. And then like, here she is like questioning what I'm doing. And I, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to carry this message to the next suffering alcoholics. He was like, yeah, but your, her disease is stronger than your solution in that kind of one-on-one um, ring, you know, ring. And I said, well, what was I supposed to do? And she was like, well, you could have called somebody in recovery to go on that 12-step call with you. And I said, nobody was going to want to get up at two in the morning and she said if they're working a program they would have gone on that 12-step call with you but i just remember when she initially was like do you think that was the best idea i was like oh yeah i could have gone over there and there could have been a guy behind the door with a bat and he could have you know hit me in the head and she's like yeah or you could have drank and i was just like i that was the first time but i mean i hung i i believe i said something like bitch and hung up the phone that time because i didn't like being reprimanded for something i felt i deserved some accolades for yeah and still here down the road a little bit (laughs) once in a while and i still hate it man and i my everything inside of me rejects it when my sponsor suggests that maybe i could have done something different yeah (laughs) motherfucker i'm six years sober (laughs) don't tell me yeah oh i know i know it's so hard and i have a sponsor that is um very um She's not like my first sponsor. My first sponsor, like I said, was kind and soft and easy with me. And she asked me my motives and my questions. But, like, now I have a sponsor that very clearly states her experience, strength, and hope as it applies to the exact situation I'm dealing with. And sometimes I'm just not in a place where I can handle it and I get defensive. Those character defects are very real inside of me. Thank God my sponsor knows me. Yeah. And it gives me some latitude when yeah. I get my hackles up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I also have learned to pause Ugh, when agitated yeah, or doubtful. And so instead of saying something stupid, I just. <laughs> okay, Sponson, I'll just listen. <laughs> I'm at a, about a 50% success rate with the, the pause, pause when agitated and doubtful. Like, I feel like I was at like 12% for the majority of my recovery. So. You know, yep, progress, progress. Yeah. <laughs> spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. So, um, <clears throat> so let's see what else. Okay, so that was the first meeting, 
And so I went to the 90 meetings in 90 days. And in the midst of all that, they were having these meetings like at people's houses. And that's where I met my sponsor. It was at her cousin's house. And it was like this big mansion. And again, still, I hadn't showered. It is like now a week further into recovery. I still hadn't showered. Still looking rough. Still showing up to meetings rough. But they invited me. And she came up to me and said, look, I had a pretty dry spell here in recovery. I haven't sponsored anybody in five years. My sponsor said I needed to come up to you and take you on as my sponsee. She said, because she said you're flapping out here like a windsock. You know what I mean? Like just flapping in the breeze and that I'm just going to let go one of these days and get mm -hmm. back out there. And um, so she said, I'll be your temporary sponsor. So that it wasn't too much pressure, right? Right. Be your temporary sponsor. And everybody has their own opinion about this stuff, too. Like, you should be responsible for your own recovery. You need to go ask for a sponsor. That just wasn't my experience. Um, because I was overcomplicating the shit out of it, I remember sitting in all these meetings thinking, do I need to um, turn in an application for a sponsor? And, like, are they going to reject or deny me based? Like, and I didn't even want to go ask for the application. The getting rejected? Oh, it was terrible. It killed me. Yeah, and you know, I didn't. I didn't ask my sponsor to sponsor me either. One day after a share, when I finally told the truth, kind of like you, you know, yep. walked in the meeting, and I've been going to these meetings and telling everybody I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> I've been because I've been I've been going to AA for four years. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just in more trouble than ever, and uh, <laughs> just having a hard time applying it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and and I did that, and then one day my court come loose because I was wrestling around with something was all you know restless irritable discontent all day man and my court come out and that night this guy who i wished who i would have loved to had the balls to ask me to sponsor and he's the guy i wanted yeah he's the guy who shared every single time and that's who i wanted but i didn't have the guts to ask him he walks up to me after the meeting and says hey i want to be your sponsor wow yeah and I, I walked out there that night i still remember like the like it was yesterday of walking out of that church and looking at the sky and, and again this is rearview mirror stuff but walking out of that church looking at the sky knowing something just shifted for me wow so yeah and, and that's right. a god everybody job for sure their, everybody does have their different opinions on how to go about that you know and mm -hmm. everybody's right and everybody's wrong yeah that's right <laughs> each person's experience is the only thing yeah. and you might get nudged to do something that you think is wrong you've been you know really you know same way we got trained in this normalization about what you thought was okay and uh we get the same thing here yeah you know we get this taught according to however our lineage is and how our, their sponsor taught them and yep. so forth and so on about what you should do and what you shouldn't do and you walk into a situation and i get nudged to ask some tell some guy i'm gonna be a sponsor and I'm, yep. that's not what i've been taught no right? yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, say, hey man you need some help yep and i'm wanting to help you and that's what happened and she said read the first 164 pages of the big book and i said I don't think I can do that quickly. And she said, I mean, just because the way my brain was at the time, like the fog was so heavy. And she said, um, just uh, just read as much as you can every day and call me every day. And I didn't understand why she wanted me to call her every day. And of course, like all newcomers, like convinced myself that it's because she needed friends. You know, like she wanted me as a friend. So that's I'll just do her a favor and I'll call her every day. Um, and poor girl, poor thing. Yeah. She was, but I, I remember calling her from pay phones. Like I, that's when I got sober. I mean, I remember calling her from, um, pay phones and stuff. And then, um, and I would call her every day, but still the conversations were real lame. Like, Hey, Hey, how are you today? My, 
like, anything happened today? I'm like, I don't know. I went to work. I'm all right. Whatever. And uh, so she, she'd be like, okay, well, call me tomorrow. And I'd be like, okay. You know, and so I would call her the next day. But what that did for me, like the, like the chip situation in retrospect, I see, I'd been calling her every day for about two weeks. And inevitably, because I no longer had the solution of the drink. My solution was completely gone. Now all I was relying on was the fellowship of AA. Inevitably, I completely had some sort of emotional meltdown, rage-filled meltdown, um, somewhere about two weeks in, and it didn't even cross my mind who to call because I'd been calling this lady every day for two weeks. So it was like uh, it was just like intuition. I just picked up the phone, called her, and, and she came and picked me up. Yeah, it became a habit, and she picked me up. Um, and took me to a meeting, and I survived that day. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And um, about a month in, or month and a half in, she said, "You are you done stewing in your own juices? Do you want to like get to work and get this shit done?" And remember, <clears throat> the first step for me was easy because, like I said, it was very clear to me from a very young age that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol, and that my life was unmanageable. Like I. I didn't need any further proof. <laughs> I had done enough uh, experimentation to realize that that was a true statement. So step one was easy for me. But because my dad was an atheist and because uh, he was an agnostic most of my life, but he's now an atheist, but I just, there's a, there's a lot of stigma with God in my house. It's just relying on anybody but yourself is considered a weakness. Um, intellectually scientifically and like mentally and emotionally like all those things um are considered a weakness so I, I had a hard time but i do remember praying as a child praying for my family and praying for my pets and stuff and um so there was like it talks about in the big book there was some fundamental uh belief in god that i had from a very young age regardless of what i learned yeah but it was blocked yeah, it was blocked by social yeah. norms yeah, and things say- Pomp and yeah, and what pomp and something and worship of other things. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, definitely yeah it got stepped on, I, and I do believe fully that fundamentally inside us there is some reach something that wants to reach out to something outside of us. Yeah, that what do you want to call it? God? Whatever. There's a there's a thing, and I think it's you know people were been doing it on cave walls on opposite sides of this globe. Forever. Forever. Yeah. And there's no way that happens if there's not some thing either programmed into a sport <laughs> or if it's not real. Prove it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, either yeah. one. Uh, it's definitely there. And I got another thing I like to say, and I heard it from somebody else, is that for the most part, there's probably some exceptions, but when your car is careening off the side of the road or your child is in the hospital or bullets are flying over your foxhole, uh, we get cornered. In those, uh, everybody's going, God help me. Yeah. Yeah. Foxhole prayers. Yep. That is. Um, so the second step is, I think, where you were going with of having a real trouble with a God word, or it didn't even. It was that he could restore it. That he, yeah, didn't even say God. Yeah. <laughs> know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I really had a hard time with um, the idea that if he was. Um, omniscient if he was all-knowing and he knew everything that i'd done but he also knew everything that i had thought and everything that my intentions i mean what my actions were were about half as bad as what my act what my thoughts and my intentions were so i thought if he knew all that like he had turned away from me like everybody else had like if he probably was real but 
him being willing to like help me at this point if he knew all that stuff about me was highly unlikely yeah we've been let down long enough you know you let me get here yeah yeah you really gonna pull me back yeah, I mean, he's if he knows that I'm all fucked up, he doesn't want to help me, you know. Cross that line, you know. Yeah. We get the teachings early on about that line. Is it real, you know? Yeah. You do this stuff and you go to hell, you know, and yeah, kind of miss the point about redemption. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, and that he's forgiving, you know, forgiving because we're human. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> um, she made me read in the middle of step two. She made me read "Came to Believe," which was uh, just. Just another book with store, short stories yeah, in it about people's it. experiences yep. coming to believe. Coming to believe, yeah. And by the time I read that book, I realized I was not, like, I was overcomplicating it. All I had to do was believe that it's possible that something could restore me to sanity. That I, and my, of, of, I knew in and of myself I couldn't restore myself to sanity. So all I had to do was believe. And I remember my sponsor telling me a story which i just always remember because it was during that whole thing because she was struggling with the god concept when she got sober and she was in a institution of some sort and like she was talking to her therapist and um she was saying like i don't believe in god whatever whatever and so they looked out the window and there was a, a like a uh flower bush out there and there was like all these hummingbirds all flying around it and she said, and the therapist asked her, like, do you believe that man made that bush? And she said, no, that's ridiculous. And she said, do you, and the therapist said, do you believe that man made those hummingbirds? And she said, no, that's ridiculous. She's like, well, then can you believe that there's something greater than you that could do that? And she said, yeah, so that was enough for her. And that's what I learned from that story was like, I just needed to crack the door with my willingness mm-hmm. and God would open it the rest of the way. Like I literally just had to be willing enough yeah. to crack that door open. Um, and I remember that around that time and I, it's very strange. I, it may have been right when I got sober because I'm not a religious person, but when I was up in my sister's attic, I remember being on my knees like, praying for the first real time and i think it was a little before the second step it was when i was still very newly sober but i was on my knees like do just taking suggestion like just pray he said pray okay yeah thank him like in the morning ask god to keep you sober at night thank god for keeping you sober like just do whatever and i just remember and i remember looking up and it had like the attic had two parts but the light was in the other room and then there was my door and then the light shone in and there was a shadow of what I, like, even saying it is almost, like, sort of embarrassing to me because of how I was raised. But it did seem, the shadow seemed to be, like, in the image of Jesus, which is was very strange to me. And I was like, my eyes are playing tricks on me. So I got up, and I went in that room, and, I mean, the light was right there, but there was nothing in front of it. There was nothing between that and the door, and... Um, although I never had like a spiritual experience which struck me sober, that was one of those things that I felt sort of a warm, comforting feeling from that time forward, which yeah. I felt was, I don't know, that those kind of things for well, me are I, weird to talk yeah. about. I uh, know, I hate to talk about them too. <laughs> I, I talk about a lot of things that I call miracles, you know, mm-hmm. not, not any less than whenever the guy come up and said, I want to sponsor you when I wanted him to do it, wanted him to do it. Basically, I was praying for him to do it at some yep. level because... Uh, it was in my head, 
Yep. And uh, all of a sudden the prayer come true, you know, and I didn't do it. Uh, that's a... Uh, and I don't know if we were on the air or not when I said that, but those God nods, God winks, those mm-hmm, things, we were. you know, I think that's what that is. Yep. You know, that was one of these ones, and it helps you come to believe, because those things put pennies or marble, if you listen to Brene Brown, and all she talked about the marble jar. Yeah. You gotta put, it puts a marble in the jar. Yeah. And uh, on the come to believe scale. Yep. So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, and Bill, Bill, thought, Bill had it happen. Yeah. In the big book. Can you imagine? I'm, you know, me and you have trouble talking about it here. Yeah. Uh, imagine how hard time he had uh, willing to tell that story that he got struck sober in a, in a treatment center, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's cool. I like it. And I do believe it. Yeah. And then, um, so, you know, I went on with the steps. And I, the fourth step, that first fourth step, I wasn't scared. Okay. So that gift of desperation, my sponsor... I have to tell this part of it because she was very clear early on that it wasn't in the big book, but that she suggested that I not get into a relationship or spend any time with men alone for the first year of sobriety. And I was not happy about that, you know, but she kind of was, you know, saying like, if you can give me one example of a healthy relationship that you've ever been in, like not just romantic, just any healthy relationship you've ever been in, I'll lift I'll lift that suggestion. And I mean, of course, I was just like, ah. Uh. So I did. And I was so desperate that I did do what she asked me to do. And that's why when I share my story, I, and when I sponsor women, that was my experience. And that's all I have is my experience. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or whatever. Everybody has their own opinion about that. And it works for some people. It doesn't work for some people. But my experience is it kept me sober that first year. Yeah. That book says... We shall tell you what we have done. Yep. And you are simply telling them what you did. Exactly. And um, so I didn't get into a relationship that first year. I spent time alone with one man, and it almost went, like, it doesn't matter because I'm looking for a Band-Aid. Like, I had a big gaping wound of pain, and I just wanted anything to make me feel better. So I, like, immediately cut that off before it turned into something that was going to become my higher power because I'm just incapable when I'm not on fit spiritual footing to focus on me and God, I just yeah. am incapable. So, um, so, you know, I went through my four step and like I said, my sister, Chris was four pages front and back of that first four step. She was the most. Mm. And what I found, you know, by the time I got to my faults was that if I would have ever been okay with myself, like I would never have been so mad at her for being who she was. It wasn't about her. It was about how she made me feel about myself. And, and that has followed me throughout recovery with different people. And it is sometimes harder for me to, it takes me longer to grasp on that. That's why my character defects are coming out, you know? Um, but in my mom and my dad, my dad and I, I mean, we all get along. I'm very grateful. Nobody in our family has ever, like, disowned anybody. We spend holidays together and stuff. But my dad and I are both very hard-headed. Hmm. I would say he, um, I don't I don't know if he's an alcoholic, but definitely alcohol has been a huge part of his life and our life growing up and um, affected the way I felt about myself. Again, 
in relation to him. Um, and even as an adult, I mean, I just, even this year, I am 40 years old, uh, and we have a sailboat that we have up there and, you know, um, I take it out sailing, but because of how he is constructed and some of this is lack of acceptance, it's all lack of acceptance on my part, but you know, I was like, okay, the whole reason we got the sailboat is because he has always sailed our whole lives, his whole life. But we never learned. So, like, when he passes away, like, that's a huge part of our legacy that's just going to die. So, like, five years ago, he bought us a sailboat that wasn't an 18-foot Hobie Cat that was going to go 50 miles an hour on Lake Michigan. That we could just sail along in and learn all the things. Well, the last, this past year, I was like, okay, it's great. I've got the sailing down. You're going to have to let me, like, put put the boat together. <laughs> Like, you're having to let me get it out there and assemble it. Because if not, I know how to sail it, but I'm never going to be able to put it together. Yeah. But he let me could, do it. Yes, but that's when him and I rub. Mm. And I, it was just, the, this time was the last time I realized, I mean, it's like the, it was like the nail in the coffin that I realized that that's who he is. And I have to be okay with that. He's never going, he, he tried to let me, but he couldn't. He, he then... And I realized that's where my lack of wanting to listen to anybody and my big ego pride reactions come from and I get super defensive. It's because of the nature of how we've always interacted. And I did the same thing with him. I mean, this year, at 40 years old, I acted like a five-year-old child because, like, you you can't tell me what to do. You know, just like some crazy stuff. But for the most part, those relationships have all been healed from that first fourth step and the first eight step. I mean, really, um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and then, um, so yeah, all I got done with that first round of steps my first year. And I got into service and I started sponsoring people, like all the things. And really, um, at a year sober, my home group, there was just such this joke because about 11 months I was getting really hard up because I had not dated anyone or even pretended to date anybody or like dated anybody for a year or more. And so like they said they were going to get me a shirt on my year anniversary that said like open for business or something, yeah. you know. <laughs> and um, so I did meet a guy uh, when I had about 14 months sober, and he had 18 months sober. So, like, obviously, we were super spiritually fit when we met. And uh, so he asked me out to the Double T Diner after a meeting, and we went. I went there, and I remember calling my sponsor, and I was so excited. And they were happy for me because I had waited. Like, everything was good. He's sober, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He's not in rehab, you know, like all the things. And... So excited. And I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, like, my picker's not broken anymore. He's probably, like, a doctor or a lawyer. He's got, like, a nice car. Like, my picker is not broken anymore. Like, I am better, <laughs> you know. And um, I pulled into the parking lot of the Double T Diner in Annapolis, and I just, there was, like, this ungodly loud noise. I didn't know what it was when I pulled in because I pulled into the dry, the parking lot. <laughs> pulled up next to a 1986 Toyota Corolla that didn't have the muffler on it, and it had all these Happy Meal toys glued to the uh, dashboard, and it, like, had 420 written in magic marker in the um, clock thing, and, I mean, it was him, and he was just like, 
And I just remember thinking, oh my god, oh my god, it's still broken. My shit. My pointer is still broken. Uh, but by then, I was already there. And, um, and we dated for um, about three years. We started... So, you know, there's that old joke. Like, how can you tell when an alcoholic's on their second date? Because there's a U-Haul in the driveway. You know, that wasn't our... This was the first time, like, we both wanted to do something different. But we were both living in somebody else's basement when we met, you know. Neither of us had any money, like, all this crazy shit. And, um, <clears throat> but we did date for about three years. We started living together after a year, and we got married. I mean, he was the only person I ever dated in recovery. We had kids when we were, you know four or five years sober i mean and he had been married before back in the madness a long time ago when he was like 19 he's like 45 now and he had a daughter from back then it wasn't from that woman but um so he has an older daughter that's now like 24 who lives in florida and she's great she does she's great um but we met when she was probably like 14 or 15 but you know um our relationship was different than any other relationship I'd been in. But we started, like, our character defects started to have problems pretty early on because we were still, like, I was basically, like, 13 when I met him emotionally because yep. I started drinking when I was 12, right. and I'd only been sober yep. a year, so I, I had no... Arrested development thing. Uh, so, yeah. And he was still going to the Samaritan house every night for dinner because he couldn't afford to eat, you know? I mean... It's just funny. So, um, you think uh, it's it's really hit me in the last couple of years, maybe the last year, maybe the last six months, of like you know how when you were sixteen you thought you knew everything, mm-hmm. and then like when you have a sixteen year old you realize how dumb they are. <laughs> 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 the same kind of things happened to me in recovery of like when I was two years sober I thought I had the world by the balls, you know. Yep. And now I see a guy who's not so. Two years. He's not really, you know, it's but not still, that he's getting yeah. better and everything, but I realized it keeps me green in some sense about like how little I really did know and then how much growth has happened since then. And what also hammers me is that I'm probably going to think the same thing at six years sober when I'm 12, mm-hmm. you know, and looking back at like this growth cycle that goes on. So, yeah, you've been sober for a little while, but you're still nutty or fruitcake. That's right. <laughs> that is a true statement. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, and we had kids. And the thing is, it's like, I am not somebody, just as a woman, like, sober, not sober, alcoholic, not alcoholic. Like, I am just not, like, a woman that was born to be, like, a mother or a wife. Like, I really have to work hard at those things because they are not things that come naturally to me. There are women who that comes Mm -hmm. very naturally to. Um, And so... I did what I do when I am, because really the most pressure that there is in those early relationships and early families is financial pressure. I mean, there's just, neither one of us were independently wealthy. We both made 16 bucks an hour. I mean, so my goal, and it talks about it in the big book, and I was sober. I'd been four years sober by the time we had the kids, you know, or five, five years sober by the time we had Colin. And, um, but that um, that financial insecurity came back. Fear of financial insecurity came back. And so I did what I knew to do, which was to just work harder, just to work more, just to, I'm doing, we were still, I mean, we still were going to meetings. I always sponsored people. He always sponsored people. We always, we had sponsors. Like we always had AA as part of it, but I can see now 
that um, it talked about in the big book how, you know, if we put kind of the cart before the horse and put material well-being before spiritual, spiritual well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my fear yeah. definitely dictated a huge portion of our marriage. Yeah. Um, and and in there it says, I'm a, and I am, I'll say it in first person, I am the victim of the delusion that I can rest happiness and satisfaction out of this world if I just manage well. So I uh, just work harder. God damn it. If I just try harder. Because there is, I, early on in recovery, I knew that there was this, there's like this weird juxtaposition between like, um, like, uh, faith without works is, like, like the whole faith without works is dead. Like God's got it. But like, then I always felt like I, okay, but I still have to do the work. You know, God's not going to do for me what I couldn't do for myself, you know, or what I could, should be doing for myself, right. you know? Yep. And so that was, uh, <clears throat> so, it, and that has carried on through my entire recovery is I, you know, I get fearful financially and then I, work more it's just it's a it's a coping mechanism it's a it's it's it keeps my mind busy it keeps my body busy um and i always showed up for my kids but and and my husband as best i could but i do see now i was not as spiritually fit all those years as i could have would have should have been there's nothing i can do about it now um but like you said i thought i knew every i mean i thought i knew everything i was going to know about recovery at that time and um, I remember when I was about two years sober, somebody at a meeting was like, if you kill yourself before you have five years sober, you'd be killing a stranger. And I was so offended by that, you know, because like I'd done the work and I was super sober, you know, and I already knew all the things. Um, but it's true. Like I, at 12 years sober, I'm going through such this like I identity shift in recovery that I just realized like all this stuff that I've been sort of resting my recovery on all these years is all just bullshit. It's all bullshit. I mean, it's hard to, and then, you know, your pride and ego and all that stuff takes a hit, but God will humble you. I mean, God will humble you to the point where you're willing to do something different, but because we're alcoholics, because I'm an alcoholic, it takes an enormous amount of pain before I'm willing to admit that I have been defeated. <laughs> like, it is a huge amount of pain uh, before I say, okay, okay, I'll maybe try what you're saying. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's oh, hard. Yeah. yeah, we don't get out the white flag easy. No. And it's funny because I was always in the middle of AA. We moved, so so what happened was we were out in um, Maryland living out there. I was maintenance supervisor at another big, two two big apartment complexes for that same company by then. Um, and we got a 20% discount on apartments out there, but the cost of living out in DC is ridiculous. So we were getting a two bedroom apartment with my 20% discount was still like six, 16, 69 a month. And I was making $29 an hour and he was making $17 an hour, but we had one kid who was, we had to pay $800 a week. I mean, a month just for like a shitty in-house daycare, like the shittiest daycare we could find was still so expensive for us so then i got pregnant with ruby which the babies were planned we planned the children it's just that um i don't know if it's evident that we were not going to be able to sustain out there so 
when I was on maternity leave with Ruby, we moved back here. I had a job at Oxmoor Apartment Homes as the maintenance supervisor with a free three-bedroom apartment mm. when we moved here. Like I'd done like a FaceTime interview and I had had that when we moved here. So, and Mike had a job when we moved here. So I was making 22 an hour, but we had a free like yeah. $1,200 a month apartment. So it was good. Um, but he didn't like that job of mine because I was on call all the time. I mean, that was just part, I was maintenance when I met him. I was on call my entire life. But when I was a maintenance supervisor and, and especially in Maryland, uh, the, during the winters, those nor'easters would come, and I would be gone for days at a time for the snow removal and for all the fire sprinklers busting. Mm. So it was just constant. All that stuff put um, put a strain on their family and on the relationship. And so, um, anyway, so when we moved here, we just we did that. But when we immediately got here, we both got sponsors. We both started going to meetings. You know, we got. It took about a year and a half before anybody in Louisville knew my fucking name in AA. You know what I mean? And I kept showing up, but I was so uncomfortable. It was like being a newcomer. I had seven yeah. years sober, and I felt my ego felt, you know, like obligated to raise my hand at every meeting and tell them I had seven. You know, I'm not a newcomer. Like, <laughs> I'm new to this meeting, but I'm not a newcomer. I have seven years sober. I just, because my pride could not fucking handle it. But on the flip side of that is, people are not going to get to know you until you raise your hand, you know, That's and true. say things and open yourself up. To to the group. That's true. So, you know, uh, it's a double-edged sword. It is. Like my a... ego getting in the way and needing to make sure to improve myself, but also they're getting to hear me and you can sit no. in the back room of an AA meeting your entire life and never get to know anybody. That is true. Never say a word. Just stay back there. So, um, I started going to late night meetings and he, like, we would alternate. He would go to like primetime meetings i would go to late night meetings and we tried to do that but we weren't spending any time together and when i got when we got married i just remember our neighbor who was also in recovery saying like you know the triangle is like god and aa god aa the marriage you know what i mean like that was the order that things were supposed to go but that gets wonky and like i said when we got together we were sober but it's you know it's spiritual progress in the way that like we hadn't progressed very far spiritually in this program yet before we had gotten together either. Mm -hmm. And so in our marriage, in our relationship was good uh, for the most part and everything. Um, but all marriage is hard. Recovery is hard. Managing kids are hard. Like it's all hard. Yep. And if I'm not in fit spiritual condition, everything seems like a burden instead of a, a grace that's being placed on me, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yes. Transformation that happens with us, you know, you really see it when somebody's new, that transformation is very visible. Uh, That's what I think was part of the reason why when these couples, how many people break up after one of them gets sober, you know, she's wanted him to get sober for 15 years and he does. And then the relationship ends. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, That's what she's wanted all along. And now she got it. And, uh, but it's that like you say in the picker kind of idea of that I am such a different person. I think that still goes, you know, we, we continually are evolving and I'm not the guy I was two years ago, Mm-mm. you know? So if you hook up with me two years ago, by now I may not be, <laughs> you know, yeah. I might not be what you're looking for anymore. And, and we grew spiritually people, in different directions. Yeah, two people too. doing that at the same time, trying to keep that together. That's a, you know, it's a whole nother, you think of other things is hard. You know, yeah. 
it's hard too. So when we moved, and then moving's hard. So we moved, we packed everything up, and moving's we moved hard. here. We had two baby, like she was five weeks old. Colin was eighteen months old. We packed up a U-Haul, put his car on the back. He drove the truck with the cats in there. My dad drove the U-Haul. My mom rode with me with the two kids. Like it was just a shit show. We get all the way there. Um, they to Kentucky. We get we had an apartment. We moved in. We what found, was your connection here? How did you? So work? I figured it was close enough to Madison to like okay. be close yeah, to my family. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, and my sister now lives in Sellersburg, so she moved back from Maryland about two years before okay, I yeah. before we did. You were getting back in the area that it got past me. Yeah, but not getting all the way back to Madison. Yeah. I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, right. But so you know, like things were going okay, but. Just like all that um, stuff, and I think that it happened. And obviously, with the divorce rate being fifty percent at this point, it is it happens in all human marriages. It's not just hard for alcoholics to stay married with kids. It is hard for everybody to stay married with kids. And um, but like I said, COVID hit, uh, and uh, you know, meetings slowed down we started having a meeting in our backyard we we had had been having a meeting in our backyard for about three years prior to covid um which was good so when covid happened we were still having it but at some point we kind of stopped because like the andy snitch line and all that stuff like i was just getting nervous about everything so we stopped having it um but then we started back up and so those were the only meetings i was really getting to was the two that were at my house on wednesdays and saturdays and Mm -hmm. i was i was meeting with my sponsees every week um but i had stopped really talking to my sponsor because i'd gotten a resentment at her at some point because you know we're petty we're immature like and my disease finds cracks and it gets in there yep. and so i started making decisions based on my best thinking and i forgot that my best thinking got me here you know yeah. and um so somewhere in our relationship about when i was working a lot about um, three years ago, Mike had had, like, he had had a girlfriend and stuff that was far away, but it, it, it was really devastating to me. But I took about five days to, like, have a nervous breakdown, and, you know, I said, look, we've got kids, we've got a life, like, if you're gonna leave me for this woman, you're free to do that, but I'm not gonna end this marriage for this. Um, but it, I think it broke something in me that I wasn't really willing to. Like, I think I just did what I always do, which is like, okay, I'm just, just going to try harder. <laughs> like, I'm just going to try harder, and it will fix this. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but, you know, sex problems, we, we all have sex problems. We'd, we'd hardly be, be human if we didn't. And, yeah. um, you know, sex problems were, were a part of the marriage problems. And um, at some point, I, my best thinking, again, after COVID had been going on for a while, this was probably in um, maybe in August or September of last year, so about a year ago, I said, if you're so unhappy with the marriage, the sex in the marriage and you aren't getting like the womanly attention you needed from me because that's what he needed but i in and of myself don't really have a lot of that womanly stuff in me i'm just not really super womanly you know like wifely and so i said why don't we have an open marriage like this was my best thinking Mm -hmm. and at the time i had gotten to a place where i believed that we really aren't meant to be monogamous creatures like i just 
it's weird how it gets in there. But so anyways, so he agreed, but, and he was, he agreed if it was for him, but like I, once I acted on it. A one way open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Until. Yeah, until, and, and so I acted on it. He found, no, I'm good. He, he found out about it and demanded that we stop the open marriage. And um, this is where, like, the really, the lying and was cheating. Was it like a don't ask, don't tell kind of open marriage? So Not we had really. four, yeah, we had four rules, which was that it, it was um, never at the house. It wasn't anybody in our friend group, like, that we were friends with. Um, you always use a condom, and it was don't ask, don't tell. Those were the four rules. Be discreet kind of thing. But he couldn't. I mean, it's just the way he's constructed. And 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 I'm not blaming him for that. It was a hail mary on my part to save the marriage. It was after many times of trying to find solutions to problems that we had. This was this was like the hail mary, yeah. right? Yeah. And it 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 wasn't. It didn't. It didn't. Obviously, didn't turn out well. But when he wanted to stop, I didn't stop. And so that's where the lying and cheating and stealing came in, right? Like, I just became that same person. I wasn't using. I wasn't drinking. I was still meeting with my sponsees every week. And some of them, I had told, I mean, I told what was going on. I was being honest about it with those people because I, because I, as an out, al- like, as a sober alcoholic, I can't fucking I handle that, that shit yeah, anymore. Yeah, I have to have somebody to. <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, or I was going to drink. There was no doubt. I w- you have to be completely honest with someone if you're going to live long and happily. Yeah, and um, it, there's, I'm grateful that I didn't drink during that time period. Like, it used to be I didn't even not put the shopping cart back in the corral before I thought I was going to be st- struck drunk because it was dishonest. It was not the right thing to do. Yeah. And here I am, the 11 years sober. You know, you know, having sex with another man who is also married with kids. You know, who is an active alcoholic. Mm. Um, because I seek those things out, left to my own devices. If I'm not seeking God, I will be seeking that. And I didn't realize that till now. That's why I'm in still a lot of pain from all of this right now. Like we started the divorce classes that you have to take with your kids um, yep. this weekend, and there's still a lot of emotional trauma on both sides the we're not exposing the children to it which i'm super grateful for and for the most part we can talk but it's hard to deconstruct a life that you've spent years constructing yes um but i have learned so much that i was so um I guess almost like condescending about for so many years, right? Like, because my theory in AA was that I just do the next right thing. I just do the next right thing. I just do the next right thing. And I did always do the next right thing. But I obviously wasn't being true to myself or God wouldn't have put me in a place to where all this had to be revealed to me. Like, for whatever reason, like, I was doing the next right thing, but I wasn't happy. And God... God doesn't want that for me either, you know, but my willpower and pride will just, was going to keep that trade up forever. And it wasn't about Mike. It's not that I wasn't happy being married and in recovery. I just was living as a person that I just wasn't. And I had to look back as to why I had done that. And it's because I feel like it was because when I got sober, I'd been such uh, a, 
menace to society for so long and I had done so many things wrong that when I got sober I felt like it was my duty to meet these social norms that are put in place by everybody. Hmm. You get married, you have kids, you have you get a house, you get a job. Like all these pressures I put on myself never asking myself like 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 asking myself and God like where I'm supposed to be in life. It was just always like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. It says like you skipped do. all those steps and now it's time to catch you back up to them and start yep. checking the boxes that normal people do. Yep. And then but then losing myself completely and that's yeah, what right. happened. Um and so you know, that's kind of where we are today. Last week I and and I you know, I'm emotional this week, too, because last week um, I got called to jury duty, which I've been on jury duty one other time in Virginia Beach. Mm. And it was really just call in, and then you go and sit there for a long time. Last time I didn't have a cell phone. I just had to sit there forever. <laughs> now you can at least play on phone. your phone. Yeah, well, I got, and then I got called into a murder trial. They Oh, wow. And I sat on it all week, and then we had to, and I was one of three people that were trying to get it down to manslaughter on Friday, and then we ended up convicting him of murder on Friday, and like had to sentence him, and it was... Wow, that is a lot. It was a lot, and for the sentencing, the kid sat up there, I mean, he was 19 when the crime happened, he's 22 now. He sat up there and said that his dad died of a drug overdose when he was six. His mom committed suicide when he was 10 because she had him when she was 13. And he'd been in 26 institutions and group homes before he was 19 years old. And I was, I mean, I was just so overwhelmed with emotion that it's mostly gratitude. Like mostly everything that I feel and should feel is gratitude because that should be me. That should be my kids. If left in my cups, if Mike was left in his cups, that's the life my kids would be living. Yeah. And I have to remember that, that like I may not be perfect, uh, and I'm not, uh, but I'm a lot better than I was when I was drinking. And I just lear- like figured out this week, like I can't compare myself to everybody else. The only person I can compare myself to is who I would be right now if I was yeah. still using and drinking. And there's no comparison there. So all I have to do is keep trudging forward. That's all I can do. Um, But I'm super grateful that we did this today because I was definitely feeling kind of Debbie Downer this morning. So I appreciate it. Well, good. Um, And I had a little hesitancy because I know you've been, I had no idea about the jury duty thing, Uh, (laughs) but I knew some shit was going down in your life. Yeah. And sometimes doing this is not the right thing at a particular point in somebody's life. You know, I've had some postponements or some energy not being in the right place. And they kind of uh, very gently saying that to me. And I'm totally cool with that. I mean, I am right on it. If you're not <laughs> feeling it, let's not do it. I'm not. I'm, there's no last thing I want to do this thing to do is feel like it's a pressured situation. Of course. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it can be a little cathartic and a little, you know, to, to talk some things out and. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing that with me because uh, it's, it's, it takes a lot of vulnerability to get that stuff out, especially like here in front of a microphone. Yeah. Uh, one thing to be telling somebody that over at the coffee shop, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that uh, it does go to show to the level of, of where you are at today, though. You know, we're saying that not perfect, right? No, never will be. That's not, you know, there's a lot. There's, the word perfect is used in the book a number of times, but if it's... Uh, to perfect and enlarge your spiritual mm-hmm. life, you know, and like real quick and go, that doesn't mean perfect. 
That's not what he meant. <laughs> you know, he means aim, aim in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it does not mean that you're gonna. You must perfect it because that yeah. starts setting bars up way too high. And uh, you know, as people with some little bit of time under your belt, you can kind of end up being in. And I think I see this in some places of where people look like they're just fine all the time and everything is just peachy fucking king all the time. And that is not the case. You know, we yeah. have to. You know, this this is real life, and they didn't promise us a bucket of roses when we got sober. Uh, some days are. Yeah. There's more of those today than there used to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, to, to be honest and, and, and tell this stuff so that other people who, cause like when I'm, you know, what you say a minute ago, I was two years sober. I was Superman. I was just couldn't wait to get my wings. Uh, when they, I've been looking in the mail every day. Uh, <laughs> when are they going to be here? When are they going to be here? Uh, and then to realize, and I'm real thankful for having a sponsor that lets me see him too one speaker I'd heard one time and you know for some reason my mind is loves to trap this stuff and keep it uh the thing you're talking about the remembering those people's names and I know they were in your life for a little while but yeah uh but they also had an impact on you and that's why those names imprint right mm -hmm. and, and I can remember my first few meetings like that meeting I'm talking about on March the 26th in 2011 I think it was 26 I can almost tell you I know a lot of those people today and I can almost tell you where they were sitting in relation to me, you know, where where people were sitting at uh, that had that kind of impact on me that almost put like a photograph in me. And I can do the same thing when I landed at the spiritual underground because the whole thing happened to me again. The where when I sat down in that meeting and look around, I knew something was different about this place. And wow. I can almost tell you where every one of those people were sitting around me. I know who was on each side of me. And um, what I was going to, going to with that was that there's a Bob Earl is a speaker I listen to a lot, you know, and he said that the definition of intimacy is me being me and me letting you see me, you know, because that's the other thing this Facebook type of life where uh, you put on the mask for everybody. Oh, yeah, you know, that's something we, you know, that we get real in AA and people talk about the real stuff that they're they're dealing with, and and it's very refreshing to have that. Uh, I learned a new word not long ago was a uh, compersion. And it's it. like, and so it's the opposite of envy and joy. Hmm. It's the way where I can actually feel for you when you're having a good time and when you're not having such a good time. And I can feel for you rather than start doing what my normal thing is, like you were saying, of comparing myself to you and either knowing that at least I ain't got it that bad yeah. or, uh, dang, I ain't got it that good. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. my, I'm, my, my scales tilt me to want to go to the, one of those two places, not just this place today where I can just be here with somebody, regardless of what they're going through, and 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 be for, here for people, you know, without taking it on mm -hmm. uh, as some kind of comparison, some kind of contest. Well, in that honesty, like I mean, I now today I know because I can't always like initially I usually can't be honest with things, but it. As soon as I admitted it to God and another person, just like it tells us in our literature, yeah. then that's my truth. And I'm okay with telling it once it's my truth. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Once I heard you say that. It really, it rang. You said a lot of things, but I don't want to like continually interrupt you while you're talking either. But uh, when you, when you poured your, when you dumped on your sister, you know, uh, and it's kind of like the way our fifth step is, is that it says, you know, admit it to God and another person. I don't think I've really truly admitted it to myself until i have admitted it to another person mm -hmm. you know when you say here's you know here it is 
Yeah. Uh, up until then, I just kept the curtain down, you know, and I'd only peek through once in a while and figured I could keep everybody at bay if, uh, if you didn't see me. Uh, once you were able to do that, um, that relief one gets from dumping that out, even though it was not necessarily a great moment for you <laughs> or no big stuff happened, like kind of thing. But the fact that you got, you know, it's all bottled up in you. And it's like a shook up soda can. Mm-hmm. And it's just in there, out. just just waiting for a <laughs> pinhole, you know, and you're able to go, <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know, I don't know if I could have handled it anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's where people get when they get to the jumping off point of trying to, you know, one reason why we have so many suicides and that kind of thing around these things that are so full and they don't have anywhere to go with it. So just one more ounce of pressure inside the can yep. is all they can take. Yep. And, uh, and and they, they punch out. Um, That's why is, I'm grateful I didn't choose to take a drink. Because the other option is you commit suicide or we just take a drink. Because it's the only well, solution know, to feel better. The night before, you were cocaining it like you were in a suicidal fashion. Yeah. You know, and I know that I'm capable of doing, you know, hoping that if I get enough in me, this will just end. Yeah. Uh, I never could. I never. I think I, what I say is, is I never would. I don't think I've ever had the courage to kill myself. But I wanted to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, if, if if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that was going to be okay. Yep. Actually, preferable. <laughs> uh, not being able to do another day of that. But I do thank you for your honesty. It's uh, one of the other things that this uh, podcast does is that every time somebody, you know, I get like a new friend. <laughs> and um, and I can't have enough of that in yeah. in in this uh, my 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 net my support network so to speak of friends doing this thing can't be deep or wide enough yeah and uh, I get to know you better because you let me see you and I appreciate that that's uh, it's a lot lot to learn in there and you're just sharing it sharing what's happening. Well, I appreciated it. I wasn't as nervous as I thought it was going to be. So, yeah, most people aren't. Uh, <laughs> the microphones disappear after a little bit, and we're just talking. Yeah. Uh, yep. Do you have any final thoughts or any last things? If you was gonna, I don't know, anything else that you'd like to say? Some people <laughs> give the little cliche if you're new here, or uh, or you can if you if you don't, that is fine too. No, I mean, all I can say is that this program works 100% of the time when I work it. Amen. It sure does. So, uh, that's it. Well, I will close it the same way I close every single one of these. I got two things. And everything I know about this recovery thing was taught to me. I certainly didn't come to any of it on my own. Anything I say is not mine. <laughs> it is something that I've learned since being here. And uh, one of them is is if you're not having a blast in your recovery it's your own damn fault um, some days are better than others these are a lot better days than uh, that old thing about my worst day now is better than my best day then and uh, I want to thank everybody for allowing Lindsay and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner today peace out peace out